0: is thrash it out a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it i'm brian latendry
1: and i'm anthony johnston and today we are talking about the 1981 album welcome to hell from venom the debut album hell. by that band hell <laughs> <laughs> ah. uh, i can't wait for this discussion uh, but before we get to that uh, let's do our usual follow-up from uh, the last episode which was brian's choice of white lion
0: yes and i'm actually going to uh there was a ton of discussion around white lion but before i jump into that i am going to stay on our facebook page i wanted to just quickly mention uh, because we talk about how great the community is there and how great the discussion is after each episode and just so many different things about that facebook group but uh chris cohen posted a couple of days ago at this point now and just had some really nice things to say. So I just wanted to kind of share it. He says, after two years of listening to the show, I've truly grown to appreciate how the podcast has taught me to keep an open mind about different bands. I love episodes about bands that I already know, Pantera, Slipknot, Metallica, etc But I can, without a doubt say I enjoy the ones about bands. I don't know even more. The track by track and discussions behind the album and tracks always gets me excited. It shows me why it's such an important thing to Brian or Anthony, and ultimately why it was important to the band to get that out there. From the bottom of my heart, thank you guys so much for all you guys do. P.S. The recent homework is just an outstanding example of what I'm talking about. I've never given Venom a real chance, whether due to not being interested or from just what I've heard about them from other people. Keep thrashing, T.O. family. Much love.
1: That is great, isn't
0: it? Awesome. I mean, I I hate to be cliched, but it's like that makes it all worth it, right? I mean, that's exactly the type of, and we have been, I think, blessed in the past couple of months to have like multiple posts of that kind on the Facebook page, where people have just been very, um, I think, appreciative of the whole package of like uh, of just thrash it out. Yeah. And, and a lot of people sort of revisiting old episodes or like new people finding it and kind of cataloging their uh, journey through episodes and things like that. Or, you know, uh, bands that people have discovered through either the Facebook community group or the podcast episodes themselves, just like a lot of great sharing. And I think when, when we started this, those are the things that you hope for in terms of a community that builds up. Around a show over time, and it's just so awesome to see that type of sentiment. I think shared amongst the group.
1: Absolutely, I was going to say, yeah, it reminded me a little of if you remember, not long after the last episode, I started a thread just out of curiosity. You know, the thought came to me, and I started a thread on the group asking how many of our listeners had bought an album or got into a band that they hadn't previously. You know bought or listened to uh, as a result of hearing them on this show uh and i i mean i don't know what i expected but i certainly did not expect the sheer volume of responses that we got I was blown away we got way way more responses of people going yep yeah, absolutely I started listening to this band or I'd never listened to this band before or I did listen to this band but I'd never checked out you know some early album by them or whatever I was just yeah as I say blown away by the responses it was fantastic people getting into you know, all sorts of bands. I mean, you know, from my point of view, especially including but people getting into bands like Paradise Lost, My Dying Bride, Skyclad, Entombed. Like, it's fantastic to see people who'd never listened to those bands before at all be persuaded to give them a go and actually sort of you know enjoy them and get into them as a result of us. You know, let's be honest, me mostly. <laughs> you know, uh, sort of pushing them on the show. So that's it's just fantastic. Yeah,
0: a hundred percent. And the other thing too is like you know, we, as lifelong lovers of this kind of music, one of the things that we try to capture with this, and, and even um, my buddy Matt and I talk about it for the Power Chord show that we do too, it's like, I am still fortunate that in my hometown, I have that music store that I grew up with. I can go there anytime I want. and And what I love about that experience is like, when you're in high school and and sometimes college like you have a bunch of people who listen to the same music as you it's very easy to at school or at the music store or something like that like have these conversations about check out this album or I went to this show last week or whatever and the older that you get sometimes you just don't have that many people around you anymore that appreciate the music or yeah. have a passion for it, like you do, and it's like you get to a point in your life where you have nobody to talk to about this stuff and so what I love about the show because I get to do this with you every time we we have an episode, but what I love about the community and the group is that it is that it is that record store experience it is that um hanging out at lunchtime and talking to your friends about the concert that you saw last weekend or something like that, and we see that on a post by post basis in here of just like it's a place to share that stuff because part of loving this music and loving you know the place that it holds in your life is being able to share that with other people and so it's just really uh heartwarming <laughs> for me to yeah. see these posts and stuff like that um so, I mean, yeah. that's,
1: that's one of the great promises of the internet, isn't it? It's one of the, you know, one of the, for all the, the bad things that the internet has brought us, uh, you know, probably the best thing of all. Uh, and this has been true since it's very, very early days, is it allows you to find your community when you might not be able to find them in real life, you know, away from the keyboard. Um, going all the way back to Usenet. You know, like when I first got on the internet and I was in, in news groups and stuff, that's how I got sort of more heavily involved in the UK gothic scene, which I'd been, you know, sort of part of and a fan of, but getting involved in like the net goth scene really kind of accelerated that... Uh, you know, headlong dive <laughs> into it, as it were, and there was like the cyberpunk groups and you know, the Blade Runner movie discussion groups, or you know, which was just flame wars and endlessly. <laughs> but it was all about, yeah, f- as you say, finding people to talk to about something that you were passionate about, but you might have trouble finding people around you in real space, as it were, to talk about and. Things like the Facebook group are really just an extension of that same thing. Obviously, now it's so much easier to post, as you say, concert videos or links to records on YouTube, you know, Bandcamp links, all that sort of thing. Um, but the fundamental principle is still: I'm really into this thing. There aren't many people around me who are who I can talk to uh, about it, but I can talk to you people online, and I know that you feel the same way. Yep. And I, I don't think that will ever go away. Uh, no, there's the, the, a
0: perseverance to it because, like, when you look at—I well, mean, we're uh, this is a Facebook group, right? Would you say that Facebook as a platform is in a great place? No, no. You, you know, when you look at Twitter, it's an absolute dumpster fire now. Like, so many of these communities that started out as a place of positivity and a place to connect with other people. Are they feel like they're in their last days, right? And but I think where what you still find is you still find pockets and you still find these sort of islands of community in the sea of like toxicity. And so the fact that we have a Facebook group in 2023 that is this like little oasis of a community where people are 99.9% of the time super cool in here and very welcoming and just really appreciative and grateful and sharing and all of that kind of stuff, I think is a testament to how important it is for us to have those groups and for us to have those connections because to, you know, to what we just talked about, you may not have that in, you know, in the physical uh, world as much. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, as I say, the, d- the desire to have that, I don't think it will ever go away. The desire right. to connect with like-minded people uh, w- will never leave. So yeah, whether it's, it was, it was Usenet. Then it was Delphi forums. Uh, then it was, I don't know, LiveJournal and bulletin boards and stuff. Now it's Facebook and Twitter, and who knows what it'll be in five years' time. You know, people are moving to Mastodon now. That's not quite as easy. Uh, there no. are even people setting up WhatsApp. WhatsApp is really Dude, like, you know, I just got uh, sucked into
0: WhatsApp it's really for...
1: accelerating its group and admin features. Yeah. You know, that's becoming much more of a thing now. So who knows, you know, in five years time, it, rather than the Facebook group, we might be pushing something else. Yep. But that desire for a community is never going to go away. And that's because it's so rewarding. And it is to go back to what you, how you started this originally. It's rewarding for us as the people who kind of instigated this particular community you know specifically uh it's as rewarding for us as it is for everybody else out there listening and taking part in that group
0: Uh, yeah on so many levels from the from the discussions that you and i have on the show to everything that comes with this community. And, you know, you mentioned connecting with like-minded people, and so that's a good segue into the legion of new White Lion fans that have just come (laughs) about from this past episode that we did. So let's talk about a little bit of the feedback for White Lion's Pride album and the episode that we did. Uh, David said, while I love Vito's playing, I'm not a huge fan of Tramp's singing. Looking forward to listening to this one tomorrow. It's been a while since I heard the album apart from Wait, Hungry, and Little Fighter off of Big Game. I have to admit they're pretty meh, and this is coming from someone who likes the first two warrant albums which prompted a discussion and a reminder that warrant was a great band and um, perhaps will show up someday on the thrash it out podcast mm. of course you knew this episode was going to resonate with phil so phil said yes i love this album and will always feel sad for white lion uh that that they got absolutely destroyed by the runaway freight train that was Guns N' Roses in 1987. Yeah, I think that those albums released on the same day. Oh Um, wow. Really? Yeah. It was stark. What happened on MTV? There was Mike Tramp with his perfect smile and perfectly coiffed hair and and the band slick style riding high on total request live. Then welcome to the jungle dropped like a nuclear bomb and white Lion was never to be seen again on the daily request show. It really marked the beginning of the end of the pretty boy metal that would Uh, that would be complete in 1991. But damn, I would have loved to see if White Lion could have become the new Van Halen. Um, Let's see. Kenneth said, I have to admit I was pretty skeptical approaching this album. I'm not into this kind of thing, but I thought it was worth a shot. The first 10 seconds was everything that I needed, uh, was everything (laughs) that I expected the band to sound like. uh, Slick and polished. At 15 seconds, they sing, Baby, Baby, You Look So Fine. And I just turned it off. I know it's the antithesis of T.O., but, but life is just too short to listen to this. I'm looking forward to the episode to see if Brian can change my mind. Uh, did Kenneth return to say I was just going to say, did he ever follow up on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> I don't think I changed his mind. Uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. Maybe later down the thread. Uh, Stewart said, um, Firmly in Anthony's camp with this one, the guitar playing for me just doesn't need that many notes. Squeeze and wittily waddles. Uh, the vocals just sound a bit forced or constricted to me. They just don't work for my taste. I can't help but compare with my earliest guitar and vocal heroes, Richie Blackmore and Ronnie James Dio, when in Rainbow, any of the three albums. And I'm afraid White Lion come up very short for me. And it's also characteristic of the late 80s mainstream metal, the things I didn't and don't like, uh, that just pale when compared to the heaviness of Celtic Frost, Sabbath, or Candlemas, a.k.a. the metal I enjoyed back then. P.S., looking forward to the homework. I've, for some reason, never got into Venom, so here's a stimulus to at least give them a listen.
1: I will say, I, I think, you know, regardless of what you think of White Lion, I think comparing anybody to Rainbow... And you know, Richie Blackmore and Dio, for heaven's sake, I think that's a little unfair. There's not many people who would come off best in that comparison. You know, we're talking about two of the most iconic uh, performers in rock music, so yeah, absolutely. that's a little unfair.
0: I would say comparing anyone to Dio, period, uh, is just I can't think of a comparison to Dio, so um, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think they're I, I think that the constant comparisons to van halen obviously were challenging for the band right i mean that's a shadow that Vito had to deal with especially at the beginning of that career and then they weren't around long enough to really
1: yeah
0: truly kind of carve their own niche um
1: although you know you you sent me that video of the the performance um I can't remember where it was sorry. Uh, I was in New York I think. Yeah. Well, right right. Yeah yeah. And I mean uh Mike Trump really did not help. <laughs> In terms oh. <laughs> of ban- hailing comparisons, he leaps onto the stage wearing like brightly colored tight spandex and big hair, and you're just like, "Oh, you so want to be Dave Lee Roth!" Oh my well, goodness. Well, the thing <laughs> about
0: David Lee Roth, and uh, again, like I'm sure Van Halen will come up uh, multiple times, but the thing about David Lee Roth, and we got into this a little bit in here in terms of like vocalist versus frontman, and like there is no argument in my mind that he is one of the greatest frontmen of all time. He is a master showman. His presence
1: you talking about Dave Lee Roth.
0: I'm talking about Dave yeah, Lee Roth. Yeah, yeah. No, elevated 100 percent yeah. Elevated every, you know, musical project that he was ever a part of, be it his own stuff, be it Van Halen, what like he just his presence and his charisma as a frontman is he's one of the all time greats. When almost it comes unrivaled, to that. yeah. Yeah. Almost unrivaled, yeah. Um and so and then I think there's a discussion there about frontman versus uh, you know, singer, right? Um and I think for Mike Tramp, he never had the charisma. That I mean, he was certainly good-looking guy. You know, fit the the look of what was going on in the '80s. But as far as presence, no matter how he tried in terms of the costumes or whatever, he just didn't have that same because so few do presence that like David Lee Roth had, right? Or in my mind, like a D. Snyder had. Uh, or yeah. Ronnie James Dio hat in that um, particular way. But um but from a vocalist standpoint, like I I I still think Mike Tramp was great. Anyways, so let's continue on with the feedback here. Uh Charles said, Oof, this is not for me. I think we're seeing a theme here. Uh he said, I think the snarky tone to the vocals is what kills it. Listening to the album made me question why I like a lot of modern takes on 80s metal. Tales of Medusa, Ghost, uh Kvelter, kvelder does that sound oh, right I don't know. <laughs> uh power trip but not the bands that inspired them still haven't found a clear answer though that's an interesting point right like bands that are very um
1: influenced by that era influenced
0: yeah. by that era but have sort of modernized it in their own way right do you go back i don't know i think it's a lot of I think it's like a lot of things. You could say that about video games. You could say that about movies. You could say that about a lot of things of like, when you go back to that original source material, sometimes it's hard to revisit that. Like we talk about that all the time, just with the era of music that we'll talk about it today. I'm sure in terms of like production and things like that, it's sometimes hard to kind of go back and listen to the, the influencer. Yeah. Well,
1: especially when, you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, there's there's obviously the thing that at the time nobody knows what's coming in the future. But even sort of if it's something that you were into at the time and you find it hard to go back, I think a lot of the time that's because it's so tied up to who you were at that time, you know. And 30, 40 years on, you are no longer that same person. Uh, you know, you're not in the same situation. You don't think the same way. You don't have the same relatively limited life experience uh, to put you in the sort of the kind of uh, same frame of mind as when you first listen to it, so yeah, it can be difficult sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it just transports you back there, and you're like, "Hey, this is still fucking great." But yeah, sometimes you listen to that older stuff, and you're like, oh, "I'm not sure what I was thinking," <laughs> you know, when I was listening to this and I was really into it. Why was I so into it? I don't understand. But yeah, I think that's m- more to do with or as much to do with who you are as a person and how you've changed as it is to do with the music.
0: Yeah, and I think for some of us, you it's like the opposite. Like, you get locked into an era or a, an aspect of that era, and it actually makes it harder to enjoy newer versions of that.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, In yeah. a
0: way where it's just like... And we'll, uh, that's going to definitely come up today in the um, in the conversation about this episode as well. Uh, so it, obviously you've noted there's some people who this album did not resonate with so far. So Phil jumped back in and said, hey, I haven't had a chance to listen to the episode yet, but based on certain comments already posted here, I'm wondering if there's a version with just Brian discussing the <laughs> album in glowing terms, <laughs> in the glowing terms it deserves, asking for a friend, uh, which is so funny to me. But... Uh, Yeah, moving on, Uh, Joe said, Brian's comments about Van Halen are killing me. Sure, 1984 was a good album, and 5150 was surprising with a new singer, but it was their debut that, dare I say, revolutionized hard rock. I'm like seven years older than Brian, so I got into music when disco dominated most of the airwaves. Hearing Van Halen, as well as ACDC and other stuff, had a huge impact. I still consider their debut one of the best ever. And Eddie Van Halen, one of the most influential players, and those David Lee Roth era Van Halen albums were such fun. I actually agree with a lot of this. Um, I think that Eddie Van Halen is absolutely one of the most influential players I, I of don't all think time.
1: Anybody could deny that, could they? Yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. What,
0: whether, however, you whether you like Van Halen's music or not, like his impact simply by the sheer amount of guitar players who immediately reference him as a pillar of their. Yeah you know, that, that made them, you know, what they are today sort of thing. Um, and also like even today, right. And with, with Eddie Van Halen's passing, there's a lot of discussion, I think, especially among guitar players that were like a little younger than him, but not like, I would say guitar players, like within a decade of him who now almost feel a responsibility to fill a void left, By his passing. Like, because I think there's, and some of it is just like the, you know, old people being grumpy about the state of current music and stuff like that. But I do think there is, there's no denying that that era and the era that is my favorite era of music was so much about the guitar players, right? And that there were so many, like, every band had a guitar hero in their band. And just the, the, influence of eddie van halen in that you know area of like the guitar player being such an incredibly important part like the idea of the lead guitarist and what that meant to be the lead guitarist and stuff like that and the virtuosos that that are from that era i do think even now today there's this whole thing of like well who's carrying the torch for for eddie you know who's who's kind of picking that up at this particular point in time so yeah in terms of influence are absolutely and he said uh those David Lee Roth era Van Halo albums were so much fun. And I think that goes back to the to the presence of David Lee Roth. Um yeah. you could also look at the first solo like the Eat Him and Smile album of David Lee Roth with uh Steve Vai and Billy Sheehan, and like it's I think that's a shining example of like Roth's presence, right? Like he he just brings an energy to everything he does in that way. Um
1: Was it on our group that somebody posted a link to a video of the uh, David Lee Roth's isolated vocals on, <laughs> yes, on a yes, Van Halen track. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but it I mean was. but but I mean and it is hilarious, obviously, those sort of things out of context always are, but it does actually kind of back up what you're saying there, because even without being able to hear the music, you can tell this guy's really into it and really having a good time.
0: A hundred percent. And like where he's emphasizing the music, and where he's doing, like, vocal fills, and right, where and he's punctuating that, things. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Like, and it sounds funny when you listen to it completely isolated, but it also gives you a sense of, like, now if you listened to that song without vocals...
1: You'd be missing it, those,
0: yeah. You would be missing them, even though you, you can absolutely hear the quality of musicianship in that. There is an element, and, and that to me is what defines a great frontman, because there are incredible singers who are not great
1: front oh, totally, yeah. or front yeah, yeah. women.
0: You know, like there are super talented singers who just don't, who are not elevating it, and, and contributing to that whole, like the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts sort of thing. And then there are front men and women who are elevating, even if they're not a great singer. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so no doubt, no doubt that Eddie Van Halen is one of the most influential guitar players of all time. No doubt that David Lee Roth is one of the most charismatic and entertaining frontmen of all time. Um, back to White Lion. So Christopher said, White Lion, dot, dot, dot. Weren't they the band in the movie The Money Pit? I'm familiar with the two huge songs, Wait and uh, When the Children Cry, but nothing else. After listening to the album, yeah, really not into it. Vito is obviously a virtuoso guitarist. I just hate the decisions he made. I can't stand tapping, and the whammy bar is like salt. Man, what's with this anti-whammy uh, <laughs> vibe? That, I'm, that I, I freaking love the whammy bar.
1: Uh, no, I, I don't remember the, the thread being like, quite so uniformly negative as this like i'm sure there were some people who enjoyed
0: it so although he makes a good point about the whammy bar here he says a little bit can make a chicken breast taste great he said it's a whammy <laughs> bar is like salt a little bit oh. can make a chicken breast <laughs> taste great
2: uh
0: but too much makes it inedible vito used too much salt in my opinion i actually like that uh, okay that's I, like a fair that. I disagree right, yeah. Yeah. i disagree but uh i do like the uh I do like the analogy there. Uh, DeJon said, great episode, such a pleasure listening to Brian pouring out love for this record, but I suppose you had to be there, and maybe of a certain age, to really get it. I would be interested to see acoustic band performances of these songs, maybe even a bit changed for the acoustic setting, and if needed, uh, fret wanking interlude included. Um, To which my response was, yeah, I think if we ever saw any sort of a reunion with Mike and Vito, I... 99% positive it would just be like an acoustic yeah, um, sort of set uh, Chris said I'm still in the process of listening to this episode but I've made it through the part where you were discussing Vito at the beginning I'm definitely one of those guys who puts Vito on the Mount Rushmore but not just because of his technical ability I think there's one facet of his lead playing that puts him above other shredders of the era which is his sense of melody I find that his solos are just about are, aren't just about playing fast but they're also incredibly melodic it's an interesting note that was made that he used to hum his solos first, treating them almost like vocal lines. I wasn't aware of that, but it definitely makes sense in retrospect. Looking forward to the rest of the episode. So there you go. That's that's one on the um, on the positive side, relatively there.
1: positive scale. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: Matthew said, "I'm certainly uh, I've certainly got some hair metal in my collection, but despite knowing the name White Lion, I'm fairly sure I have never heard anything by them. One of those bands that seemed to fall into a blind spot. I think if I'd heard them thirty years ago, I might have been into them." but it's not hitting the spot for 50-something me in 2023. I think it could have been different if the drums weren't recorded in a studio across the other side of town. (laughs) And now we travel from one blind spot to another because for the homework, I'm aware of the band, and I think that's where my knowledge ends. And I could go on because there was over 140 comments in this White Lion thread, but I think that's a good segue into our topic for today, but I just want to thank everyone. Like, I love the responses to this episode. Like, uh, total, like people like stuff and they don't like stuff, and that's totally fine. I just love the discussion. Yeah. I love the analogies. I love the jokes. I love all of it. And so um and what I love most of all, to go back to the first post that we read today, is that all of this is in good fun, right? Even for people who are like, this yeah. is not at all anything that I would listen to ever again, or even people who, like, vehemently, you know, agree or disagree around Vito and Eddie Van Halen and all that kind of stuff. Like, just great discussion. I'm super happy that this generated so much discussion.
1: To me, it comes down to, are you into music? Like, regardless of your taste, are you into music in the way that, you know, that that we understand that to mean? Are you really into it? I am the sort of guy... Who watches so many too many documentaries about how albums are made or bands on tour or yeah. what you know watches like you know sort of concert uh recordings when they're on t v and what have you i've got i must have something like about mm somewhere between like eight to ten hours of recording sitting on my uh, box downstairs that I still haven't got to yet of, yeah, behind the scenes stuff about rock history or makings of albums or live concerts. There was a series on recently about women in rock uh, that I recorded. I haven't started li- watching it yet, you know, and I don't know, it just kind of, it's not always about the stuff you're into. Uh, I mean, you know, within a an overall genre, sure, you know, I'm not going to, necessarily watch a program about a genre of music that i'm completely not into at all i'm not going to watch a documentary on country for example um but within you know the genres that i do like for example rock music and heavy metal yeah if it is it interesting you know is it illuminating is it mind expanding and not in the sort of hallucinogenic way uh if so yeah then i'll listen to a podcast or i'll watch a show and stuff because it's I don't know, you know, to me, that's just kind of part of being, like I say, more than just a music fan, but really being into music, regardless of whether or not the specific album or act is one that I, you know, am a big fan of. So, yeah, I I think it's great that we have so many listeners who are clearly willing to sort of follow us (laughs) down these paths and listen to albums that they might not otherwise listen to, uh, just in the same way that we do you know, as host of the show, um, just because they're into music and that's interesting enough.
0: Yeah. And I think I agree wholeheartedly with everything that you said. I think when you love music and like the, these genres of music, you always want to learn more. So whether it's a, an album that you've never heard of, whether it's the process behind something, whether it's this music that is presented live. What whatever that may be, there's always this. It's like you're a student of it forever, right? And I love that. I'm I'm with you. Like I'll I'll consume anything that has to do with like, especially and also like, alongside that, I'm a process nerd. So I love to see how things are made. Oh I yeah, love behind to the scenes stuff. A hundred percent. Yeah, ha-
1: videos of like albums being recorded oh, in my the God. studio and stuff. I love those. Yeah
0: like i just love to see how anything creative is made and so being such a fan of music and any opportunity to see like how something is made is just yeah like i'll watch gear videos that like you know (laughs) oh we i'm reviewing this new uh guitar today let's talk about the pickups i don't even know what the difference between those are dude but i love to hear you talk about it like (laughs) uh, like anything about it is is good to me so uh so speaking of like just a, a fine-tuned production that
1: <laughs> rewards increased
0: listens and breaking down for, of for every element. the and
1: nuances of the recording.
0: <laughs> let's talk about Venom.
1: Oh, yeah. And especially this first album, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I chose this album for a, a very specific reason, um... And, I mean, it's their first album, which obviously just makes it important, you know, in in, in the history of any band. But also, partly because it is so lo-fi, it is so sort of, and that's because it was originally, I'll I'll explain all this in a moment when we get through the history, but it was originally meant to be a demo tape. It wasn't meant to be released as an album, but then it was. Uh, And that's partly why it sounds so sort of muddy and, yeah, as I say, lo-fi. But the fact that it had such an impact and that it still, to my ears, sounds so good, even despite, in spite of that terrible production and the really kind of muddy, unclear sound. And yeah, just kind of, I mean, it, it, it really, it was recorded in three days and it sounds like it, (laughs) you know? Uh, And that's the fact that, as I say, it's such a good record in spite of all that is partly why I chose it. Like their, their second album, Black Metal was recorded much more, uh, you know, traditionally, if you like much more properly. Uh, and has a much, much better, cleaner sound. Everything is a lot more audible, a lot more legible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I actually don't like it as much. Uh, I mean, it's still good, but it's. I don't think it's as good as this because what they make up for in production, they kind of lose in energy, I think. Uh, it's very, we've talked about this before, Terry Date. Uh, used to talk about this a lot when he was, you know, when he was the go-to producer in the 90s for a lot of the heavy bands. It's really hard to capture certain bands' energy in the studio. You see them live and they're blistering and then you put them in a studio and suddenly the energy kind of drains away. Uh, you know, that's that's a talent to be able to do that as a producer and as a recording engineer to capture that energy. Uh, White Zombie famously had trouble, you know, with their early albums. Um, with Had the same problem, I should say, in their early albums. And, uh, yeah, you know, so that's a real issue. And I think this first album does capture that energy, but at the expense, yeah, of (laughs) any kind of quality in the, uh, in the audio i think there's um jeff barton who is a big part of the venom story i'll mention him again i'm sure later uh i found a quote from him about the first time when he reviewed it and bear in mind he was reviewing it positively but he said that it had the uh hi-fi quality Mm. of a 50 year old pizza (laughs) 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 which i think is just a wonderful (laughs) wonderful non sequitur um So, yeah, Venom were formed in Newcastle, which is in the northeast of England, in 1978. Newcastle in 1978 was an incredibly grim, deprived area. Uh, You know, those of you who are familiar with the story, the famous story of Black Sabbath, you know, forming in the black country in the West Midlands, again, a very industrial, grim, deprived area. Uh, Newcastle was basically the same, but... uh, on the coast and colder because it's a lot further north and it's kind of i think it's interesting just to get away from from venom just for a moment i think it's really interesting to think about how many of these early uh british heavy metal bands were from those kind of deprived working class areas and what drew them to this really aggressive for the time really aggressive heavy music I think that's sort of, you know, you could, somebody could write a book about that, I'm sure. Anyway, so yeah, they were formed in 78. Uh, like so many bands at the time, they were formed out of the ashes of several others. There were lineup changes and name changes. Uh, they had a completely different singer at one point, a guy called Clive Archer, whose stage name was Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> go big or go home, you know. Right. Um, and Kronos who is, you know, now we know as the vocalist uh, and bassist, was actually the second guitarist and didn't sing. Um, But a series of circumstances meant that uh, they lost their bassist, so he took over the bass, and then the others asked him to sing, and they decided they liked him better than Clive Archer, and that's how you wound up with the sort of power trio format of, yeah, Kronos on vocals and bass, Mantas on guitar, and Abaddon on drums which is the the lineup on this album and what people think of as the classic Venom lineup. That's the lineup that they used to record their first four albums, I think, or maybe five. Um, and you can actually hear the first singer, by the way, Clive Arch, you can hear him singing on a demo, the very first demo they made called Demon, which is on YouTube. You can find it there. Um, and he is, th- this goes back a little to what we were just talking about. He's a better singer than Kronos, no question. Like, he is certainly closer to what you'd have expected from a heavy metal band at that time he's he's channeling paul diano quite a bit uh and there's even a bit i think a bit of rob halford influence in Mm -hmm. there but as a result it actually doesn't stand out as much as they do with kronos singing like you know where love or hate kronos nobody sounds like him uh he sounds totally unique, and you 'd never mistake his vocals for anybody else and that can make or break a band uh and so I think it was definitely the right choice. I think if they 'd stuck with archer on vocals i 'm not sure they would have had the impact that they did, despite how shocking they were at the time with all the satanic imagery and what have you um so yeah, as i say uh that, that's i mean they were heavily inspired by bands like Judas Priest and Black Sabbath and Motorhead, Motorhead being a really obvious one on this album in particular. There's a lot of tracks on here that have a very, very clear and strong mm. Motorhead influence, I think. Uh, but they just wanted to take things even further. <laughs> and yeah. Take the, the the lyrical content, the satanic imagery, the sort of the idea of being evil and heavy and aggressive even further. They were possibly... It could be said they were the first extreme metal band. Now that's you know, that's the sort of thing that can cause arguments. And there were certainly bands that were as extreme in their sound around at the time, Discharge being a good example. But Discharge were essentially punk. They were hardcore punk, more than metal, even though loads of metal fans liked them, much like Motorhead, you know, loads of metal fans liked them, and they're sort of they've become over time part of the metal canon. They were basically a hardcore punk band. So if you want to get away from stuff that was uh you know particularly specifically punk, yeah, you you could say there is a good argument to be made that Venom were the first extreme metal band and as a result, even though not everybody's heard them out there, even though they're certainly not that popular now uh, as they were in the early 80s and they were actually really popular in the early 80s more than you might realize. Um their influence is enormous like almost impossible to quantify because and the members of the band have said you know look if we didn't do it this was something in the air if we didn't do it somebody else would have and we just happened to be the first people to do it and we were in the right place at the right time and that may well be true but nevertheless uh things would have been different in some way if venom hadn't Formed, And if Kronos, who worked at a recording studio, by the way, who worked for Neat Records, who put out the album, uh, if he hadn't worked there and hadn't been able to basically blag free studio time to record their demos, you know, all of these little things that had to fall into place had to be just in the right place. The people had to meet, the the bassist had to leave so that Kronos stepped up and took over the bass with that very distinctive sound. Any of those things not happening and metal could stroke would be in a very, very different place uh, that's the sort of thing that I find really interesting um but also just talking about the band and the record, yeah, as I say, they had a huge impact in the early eighties, massive impact, and it's been kind of forgotten like people just don't really talk about venom much anymore unless they are really really into that side of things, and I find that kind of maybe it's because the songs are so uh n- what we don't really think of as metal anymore you know they are that kind of motorhead style of a bit bluesy quite rock and roll uh and also obviously very very cheesy by modern standards <laughs> um so yeah, yeah i don't know but it's uh it's fascinating to think about what could have happened if venom hadn't put out this album
0: i have so many thoughts about <laughs> this album um but I will start by saying, I think it's one of the most important albums that we've ever talked about on this show. Um, and I have really been thinking about why... I've really been kind of uh, bummed out about the fact that I, I wasn't into this album back in the day. But I would say that this album almost perfectly captures... My favorite brand of metal, wow, and I feel like it is the blueprint for everything that came in metal in the next four years
1: oh, you think you're, so you're talking about thrash
0: I'm talking about hair metal well that's metal. Metal, actually yeah. I'm talking about all of it, so I just made a quick list off the top of my head, right, but Welcome to Hell comes out in 1981. In 1982, Twisted Sisters Under the Blade comes out. So I'll I'll just start by saying, like, if you haven't given this uh, Welcome to Hell a good listen, I want you to listen to this album and then go and grab an album from that 82 to 85 period and you're going to hear venom <laughs> like you're going to hear venom's influence in that go listen to twisted sisters under the blade go listen to obviously kill 'em all which i think yeah listening to this album makes me realize that metallica is unjustly credited with influencing music to the degree that most people believe they did for the next several years after kill 'em all because Kill Em All sounds like the studio version of Welcome to Hell.
1: <laughs> I don't think I'd go quite that far. Because, I mean, they, they they turned things up even more and made things even faster. And they certainly were better musicians. But, but it, it
0: was as if someone handed them Welcome to Hell.
1: Right. But, but And I said, mean,
0: here's a bunch of demos.
1: There are early photos of Metallica wearing Venom t-shirts.
0: Well, according to Kronos, like... Th- they're responsible for, for you know, they Venom watching a, like, Metallica in uh, Europe. Yeah, uh, basically, they supported
1: Metallica uh, on a tour, didn't they?
0: He has a quote. So you but, mentioned sorry, Jeff,
1: Metallica supported Venom. I mean, yeah, yes.
0: Yeah, so you have uh, Jeff Barton. Uh, you mentioned him. So there's yeah. a there's an article uh, on louder just, just,
1: pe- just for people who don't know, Jeff Barton was a very prominent rock. Uh, journalist for Sounds magazine, which was a UK you know music review magazine, but he also, more importantly and more relevant to us, literally founded Kerrang! magazine. He was its founder and first editor. You know, no Jeff Barton, no Kerrang! Uh, so I think you know that kind of states just gives you an idea of how important this guy is.
0: And you'll know this better than I will, so correct me if I'm wrong. But was he the one who took the demo from? Venom and wrote about it. Yes. In, so so my understanding was at the time, I forget which article I read this in, but that there was like a weekly or a monthly um, thing where people would name like a playlist of three songs that they would yeah. um, <laughs> sort of share out. And when the Venom demo came out, uh, Jeff shared... That was his three songs. Like normally, they would do three yeah. songs from three different bands, and so he just yeah. said these three songs from this band, <laughs>
1: yeah. which was the demo of Venom, which was unheard of at the time. Yeah, right. everybody was like, "Are you insane?"
0: <laughs> so, so definitely, um, you know, in the in the current days of influencers, like clearly a, a huge influence on like what people would check out, right? As far as like yeah. new music and stuff like that. Um, so. But yeah, so there was there was a thing in here about, um, and it's from an article that Jeff wrote that says uh, Venom gave Metallica their first big break in Europe twenty years ago. This is written in like two thousand five or something. Um, when the band invited Lars and Company over from California to support them on tour, the dates kicked off in February nineteen eighty four in Zurich, Switzerland, and covered Germany, France, and Belgium before finishing up at a fledgling thrash metal festival in Holland. So. Uh, The article goes on. Is that what
1: became Eindhoven, I wonder? I don't know. Which is now like one of the biggest metal festivals in the world. Yeah, wow.
0: Now, Kronos seems to be deliberately kind of an asshole in most of the interviews that he does.
1: (laughs) Um, He's a a bit spiky, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and
0: so in this article, in this interview that he had with Jeff in this article, he says, Did Metallica support Venom on numerous occasions? Someone should remind them of that they appear to have forgotten. (laughs) So (laughs) he, you know, he goes on to say other things. He, every interview I read with this dude, he is like taking shots at other people and, but also seems to be kind of having a lot of fun. So it seems to me like anybody who interviews this guy, it's, uh, he's a cartoon character. And, um, you know this, but he goes on to say a lot of complimentary things about them, like they really, you know, found their sound and they really kind of took things a step further. Um, But you know, certainly in his mind, th- there's a heavy influence there. There's of, a debt, uh, ode. yeah,
1: uh,
0: a debt. Uh, yes, absolutely. And so, and I think to that point, and again, obviously, I am prone to hyperbole, but I think there's a debt owed for almost every band that put out an album that falls under the metal banner in the next like three to five years after this album came out i mentioned twisted sisters under the blade i mentioned kill em all it, it, go listen to the debut albums of the big four show no mercy fistful of metal i would say exodus is bonded by blood if we want to talk about a big five um killing is my business definitely there's elements there, I think, although I, I think by, by the time Mustaine got to his own band, he started to go maybe in a different direction, but certainly the stuff he was doing with Metallica that ended up on Kill Em All oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It has a strong influences, influence there. I would say Wasp's first album from 1984 oh, uh, yeah. it has DNA there, and I would say Shout at the Devil, Motley Crue's second album from 1983, absolutely is influenced by Venom. If you look at what they did on Too Fast for Love which was much more glammy, and you look at what they do on Shout at the Devil, which is much more satanic, I would argue that, um, and musically, I think there's some parallels there as well. So all of these albums came out between uh, like Twisted Sister Under the Blade, 82, Kill em All, 83, Show No Mercy, 83, Shout at the Devil, 83, Wasp, 84, Full of Metal from Anthrax, 84, Killing Is My Business, 85, and Bonded by Blood, 85. Those were just some albums. And again, this is my internal backlog so this is where i pull influences from but i heard welcome to hell in all of those albums and so the fact that i didn't you know think of venom as foundational in all of these albums that i just mentioned which for most of these bands are one of if not my favorite album from the actual band right Right. and so um everything about this album i love I love the shitty production. I love the vibe of it. I love because I that's what I love about all those other albums. People say, What's your favorite Megadeth album? Killing it is my business. I, it just is. But you go listen to Wasp's first album, it's freaking amazing, especially when you, uh, when you get the version that has Fuck Like a Beast, which is supposed to be the opening track on that. When you listen to Shout at the Devil, when you listen to Show No Mercy, like there is something about those albums and their unpolished aggression yeah that is you just said it about venom themselves yep in future albums something is lost but in those albums it is very present and that i don't know if that's like i guess Shittily produced metal is my favorite genre? I don't know. Like <laughs> what like whatever that I mean, I'm like, with you. <laughs> like whatever that is, it's that early 80s capture the energy, damn the production, yeah, sort of vibe that and and so as I'm listening to this, as I'm listening to Welcome to Hell, like it's an album where you throw it out and I'm like, oh, I, this shouldn't really super click with me. And then immediately it's like, oh my God, this is, I love everything about this album. Like immediately. And with every lesson, immediate love, everything about this album. And so
1: oh, by it the way, really
0: did clarify for me.
1: Just going to say, you, you, uh, you missed Show No Mercy.
0: That's what I meant. Show No Mercy. Did I not say Show No Mercy? You- I meant, uh, I have it on my list. So the albums that I listed here are Under the Blade 82. Kill 'em All, 83. Show No Mercy, 83. Shout at the Devil, 83. Wasp, 84. Fistful of Metal, 84. Killing is My Business, 85. And Bonded by Blood, 85.
1: Right. Yeah. Those were the
0: albums I scrambled to put together in a list.
1: Either you missed it or I missed it. But yeah, it only came to mind because you were talking about, you know, debut albums were shitty production.
0: Listen to the Antichrist. (laughs) I am the Antichrist. Like, you go listen to that song and tell me that that's not Venom. Right. It's Venom. It's 100% Then There
1: is, and obviously, like you said, Kronos is a bit notorious in interviews, so you have to take this with a pinch of salt, but he has claimed that, that Slayer, the Slayer guys were literally like at the front row of Venom gigs when they uh, did stuff in well, the US, you know, which, and I could believe it. I honestly could.
0: So you look at Motorhead, right? Which, I mean, you know what's also awesome is like, if we're, if this is like a Jenga tower, and we keep inserting blocks as to the foundation of it, right? Where yeah. we're like, you know what? This band really needs to be at the bottom of this because everything's sort of built on top of it. Everything that we've talked about on this podcast in some way, or shape, or form owes a debt to Motorhead, right? And so clearly, uh, obviously, this band, Venom, as well, uh, very influenced by Motorhead. But to, to see like that motorhead and that Judas Priest influence and then to see what Venom added to that.
1: Yeah.
0: And then to see like so. What everybody think else about added that. to
1: that combination. Yeah. Yes. And
0: like think about that and then think about kill 'em all, right? Think about that progression. Uh, you take the Judas Priest, you take the motorhead, you put that together, you you add this element that Venom is adding now, and then Metallica takes that and they take it to another step further. And then, you you know, you look at, or, or I would say the Big Four takes that, right? Yeah. And then, or the Big Five, or all those sort of Bay Area thrash, you know, um, that period of time takes what Venom did and then adds their component to that. But what's great about the first albums of all those bands is that I feel like first albums are where you can see the influences the most. Yes. Because they're still forming their own sound, and they're still... They've been playing covers of all these bands that influence them. And everything that they write in the very beginning sounds like the bands that influence them. And so you go back and you listen to these first albums. And once you put this Jenga piece of Welcome to Hell into the mix, it just like unlocks a blueprint that you're like, holy shit, all of these bands were influenced. And like I said, Twisted Sister, Motley Crew, Wasp. Like, which I think also goes back to speak to the idea that like at that point in time. You know, we talked about how some people might not consider what Venom is doing on this album, like today in 2023, to be as quote unquote metal as it certainly was back then. But that's where we get into the whole like hair metal discussion and everything. Like it was just metal at that point in time. And so Wasp was standing next to Motley Crue, was standing next to Slayer, was standing next to like at that particular point in time. And so, at least, and certainly for me, in my enjoyment of all of those bands, like they're all part of that same thing. And so I think that thing is just, like, super aggressive, shittily produced metal from the early 80s. Is like, <laughs> it's like, the, it's not hair metal, it's not thrash metal, it's not speed metal, it's not black metal, it's not whatever, it's that. that. It's that sort of lump of clay that my listening foundation is kind of built on.
1: I think the other, you talked about progression, and the other thing you should do as well as you say like you're sort of listening to those albums that followed immediately in the wake of welcome to hell is listen to albums that preceded it in metal because you know the most prominent metal bands at that time were uh black sabbath judas priest uh maiden actually killers came out i think the same year as this so you know they were around in the live scene but you couldn't really count that as uh you know so it was like yeah motorhead judas priest Uh, Black Sabbath and that's was pretty much it in terms of the big bands that were actually being classed as heavy metal as opposed to heavy rock and let's not get into that discussion again Um, and even Motorhead like none of them were this heavy at the time now following this album they were, <laughs> you know, but Sabbath, much as I, you know, everybody knows, I love Sabbath, but what I loved about Sabbath was, or one of the things I love about Sabbath is their sort of, you know, their mood, their atmosphere, and the, the massive influence they had, the fact they were innovating and doing things that nobody else did. But even me, you know, a massive Sabbath fan wouldn't say that they were kind of extremely heavy, especially not in the 70s. Um, Judas Priest famously were not Sonically, all that heavy at all until the 80s. Um, so yeah, I think that's instructive as well, is listen to what was considered heavy metal in say 1979 and 1980, and then listen to this in that context of 1981. You're like, oh shit, actually they really were yeah. pushing things. This really was heavier than almost anything anybody else had heard at that time. Uh, and that will give you an idea of why it made such an impact and why it was so influential, even though it still didn't sell all that much, you know, and I don't think Venom have ever been a particularly high-selling band, although they do manage, or they did in the early days, I should say, manage to sell out quite a lot of live shows, and, you know, they toured a lot and, uh, you know, got big audiences, but I don't think they ever sold a huge amount of records by the standards of somebody like a Sabbath or a Judas Priest or an Iron Maiden.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, and again, I think maybe the thing, the reason that it hit me so strongly in listening to this album is just because for me, it was like an unlocked piece. Yeah. And so, well, you,
1: I, so, I mean, let's talk about where we first heard them. So that, so you had never heard Venom before this.
0: I mean, I'm sure I heard them. And, but when I think of Venom, I think of a patch on the back of someone's jean jacket.
1: <laughs> no, I really do. Yeah. No, like I'll that cover
0: it. <laughs> uh, and the black metal cover. Like I, I, I think of a patch on someone's jacket that I would see at concerts that I would go to of a band that I really wasn't familiar with. Right. And, you know, once I found my groove, like, you know, once, uh, once I'm listening to Metallica and Megadeth and Slayer and Anthrax, like I've already found my groove and I'm moving forward. Why
1: would you go back and listen to that?
0: Right. It's, it's been in this later, you know, part of my life that I have really went back and back even before what, I grew up loving. Like that, I've been been exploring more, you know, at this point in my life. But yeah, certainly back then it was like, I found my thing and I really like this thing and I'm going to keep following this thing wherever it goes, you know, for however long it goes. And, you know, at one point the hair metal piece kind of drops out of the scene entirely, but a lot of the bands that I grew up with are still around today. And so they've, you know, continued to shape that. But yeah, so for me, um, a real blind spot with venom, and so that's. I think that's why my reaction is so visceral to this now. Of like, just uh, unlocking a, a foundational element of everything that I grew up loving.
1: See, I, I was. I've always been a bit of an archaeologist in that sense, and I think that might have something to do with the fact that my dad, as I've talked about before, was a rock fan, and you know he introduced me to Motorhead and stuff. Um, and so, as a result, going back and sort of listening to the bands that influenced the bands that I like has always been a thing that I've done or tried to do and enjoyed doing. Um, so, but, but I, I think that's fascinating what you're saying there, that, yeah, you kind of, it's as, as you've gotten older, you've gone, hang on a minute, let's, let's look at the roots of this. Um, but I, I, I can't honestly say that I was listening to Venom at this time. I was only nine years old when this album came out, you know. I wasn't listening to this in its, uh, you know, as a contemporary um
0: yeah i would have it been was, seven. i would have been seven
1: right yeah it <laughs> is yeah so i mean that's out of the question um but it was for me i think it was probably late 80s early 90s when i was really starting to get into the scene uh and me and my mates uh at school and out of school would make each other mixtapes you know record albums for one another that sort of thing um there was one particular in my high school there was one particular kid who was basically the only other committed metal head that I knew. I had some friends who didn't go to the same high school as me, who, you know, including my old mate John, who is the guy I was into Halloween with that we talked about on that episode. But we didn't go to the same high school. At my high school, there was one other guy who was, you know, into metal and uh, heavy rock stuff in the same way I was. Um, and I think he might have played me some venom i think that's where i first heard it but honestly it was so long ago i don't actually remember i just know that come the 90s i was aware of who venom were uh like i knew they were a thing and i knew that i liked them because they sounded like motorhead essentially um but i also remember at the time thinking them incredibly cheesy because Mm. of the imagery and the lyrics and the sort of really badly done photo shoots of them in like leather and studs and the big hair and all that sort of thing, which even in the nineties I was you know, in the early nineties I was just like, no, no, no. That's not, you know, that's not the imagery that I'm into these days. But as I say, I knew who they were, and then over the years I came to like them more. Uh especially the music more and especially the early stuff because partly because I started to understand how influential it had been, as we just talked about. Um And also because, I mean, you talked about those first initial albums uh, in the sort of early 80s of those bands being kind of raw and lo-fi production, which they were. But come the early 90s, that wasn't really a thing anymore. I think, you know, sort of certainly post-Slayer, you know, engineers and producers had figured out how to record metal so that it actually sounded great on record and on CD, Uh, because CDs obviously were starting to become a thing then as well. And so that wasn't really a thing anymore. Nobody was really doing that sort of rawness, apart from, ironically, the Norwegian black metal scene, which named itself after (laughs) Venom's second album. But... I'm not into Norwegian black metal. It's never appealed to me, uh, especially the early stuff. I mean, the later stuff, the more, more modern stuff. Some of it actually isn't too bad because they've branched out a lot. But the early stuff, the songwriting was basically non-existent. Uh, whereas Venom's songwriting is actually really great, despite their limited musical <laughs> talent. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a weird time in that sense. But then, in the late '90s, along came bands like Slipknot, and suddenly. That idea of like a kind of raw, slightly lo-fi wall of sound metal that was in again, you know, suddenly that was uh, everybody wanted to do that now because Slipknot were having so much success. So it, I don't know what, what point I'm trying to make here, other than to just describe how I guess things go in cycles. And uh, it, you that, know what? You, you just know, that's always been mind interesting mind to me.
0: Go on. When did Saint Anger come out?
1: Uh that would have been or oh, what was it? Ninety ninety eight? No, no, it was after that, wasn't it? Two thousand three. Oh, I'm way out. Yeah, two thousand three.
0: Yeah, it just made me. I need to go back and listen to that again. It's it's definitely um, post
1: Slipknot. I'll tell you that.
0: Yes, right. So maybe Slipknot brings back that cycle, right? Yeah. Of of and then and then yeah, it's like a getting back to your roots kind of thing, right? Of like a a.
1: Which rock music does every so often every totally like, every every generation or so there's a movement of people going like no, strip it all back and go back to the roots let's make let's really simplify things again.
0: Well, uh, totally, absolutely. I mean, look at what grunge is, right? And that's so exactly like, what grunge uh, was, yeah. And 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 then to go back all the way to to Motorhead and to the formation of Venom and things like that. What does that come out of punk? Right. And so and it's the same thing. And and there's a quote that Kronos has in an interview. It might be the same one um, that I was just talking about, where he basically talks about, like, you know, at the time, punk was dead and metal was lame. And so we were trying to do something. And that's where he was talking about, like, someone would have come along and done it um, because it was what needed to happen at yeah. the time right and so but to go back to like you know the idea of uh venom being extreme metal right like the the things that we look at is totally cheesy of them like the satanic lyrics and everything it was it, it to me it's kind of all born out of the question of like what are the boundaries that we can push exactly yeah to from our from from the music to the lyrical content to the pyrotechnic stage show to the you know all of these things and though and so then also like put that in context of you know wasps and Motley Crue and Slayer and like all that. It's like merciful fate, right? And, and things like, it's like, what can we push to cause a reaction and to, you know, to, to cause a reaction in people who don't understand it. And, but also to cause a reaction in the people who are looking for some sort of, um, anti authority, just like something to capture the catharsis of like, the 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 angst that we all have at certain points in our lives right the rebel the need to rebel the yep. need to to all that sort of thing and so i think when you look at it as a package it's not as cheesy because what to go back to the time that they were doing it in and like you said the music that they were following and then what they added to that whole conversation like all the satanic stuff there is really them trying to push another boundary in this total package of extremity
1: And it worked. I I found uh, not interviews, but sort of retrospective reviews and things like that from people, you know, in over the last 10, 20 years uh, and conversations between fans who, you know, sort of were, I suppose, about my age, you know, who were growing up around the time this album was released, talking about how their parents would like throw it out the house. Like they, they would, they bought it, took it home, and their parents like just threw it in the trash because they were just disgusted by the the imagery and the cover and, you know, even just the song titles. And they were just like, no, absolutely not. Uh, and that, just, of course, just made the kids want it even more. <laughs> it's just, they were like, well, if my parents say it's bad for me, then absolutely I want to listen to this.
0: <laughs> yeah, and Venom ended up on the Filthy 15, didn't they? Yeah, they uh, did indeed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, that you have that whole, you know, uh, PMRC stuff going on and the explicit lyrics tags and all that kind of stuff that followed, you know, in the next couple of years and things like that. And so, yeah, clearly, to your point, it worked it had a reaction amongst the people who were not fans and then it had a, a reaction which only then fueled the reaction of the people who were fans even right. more because it gave it, it validated for them like yeah this is the this is the rebellious stuff this is the the stuff that um you know can be yours right and does and isn't you know and isn't the establishments, you know, and is isn't that sort of, and so, yeah. And for a teenager, like what, what more do you want? I mean, like it all, but that to me is like how all of this stuff fits all together in, in that um, package, you know, from the lyrics to the, to the visuals, to the stage show, to the music, to the lo-fi production. It's just like the unbridled aggression and catharsis of it all is just something that um and clearly like you know and also i think like the idea of like the big four and, and metallica and the influence that they had on everything else i think is more profound in the united states right because i didn't like i didn't have a for as much of a frame of reference for venom whereas right. had i you know had i had that I think I would have perceived all of that differently. But I, I don't think I'm alone in thinking that um, you know over here, for a lot of us, it was Metallica and then, to a, a different degree, the Big Four that sort of influenced all of this stuff that kind of came after it. And that is true, but I think to have that discussion without Venom is missing a key component of that. I,
1: I, I think that's true, but I think I, I wouldn't overestimate the number of people like over here. Who also know Venom? To be perfectly honest with you, you know. Well, then I think
0: over there too, right? But would you agree that to to have that discussion without? In the inclusion of Venom is a grave oversight. Oh, I no, mean, obviously, you brought the you brought the album to this.
1: Sure. Uh, no, yeah. I, I totally agree. But what, what I'm saying is that, like, if you were to find your average metal head in the UK and say, hey, you know, what's your favourite Venom album? They might be aware who the band were, or they might go, oh, I've heard of them, but I don't know anything about them and I've never heard a record by them. I think would be the most common response, you know? So that's what I'm yeah. saying. Don't overestimate, sort of don't think that everybody in the UK is like, hey, great, big Venom fans and nobody in the US is. I think it's more that actually very few people anywhere are, but over here there was at least more of an awareness of who they were, partly because they got covered in the press like Kerrang! You know, I do yeah. remember reading about Venom and various splits and lineups. <laughs> in the 90s when i was a big Kerrang! reader i'm sure i remember seeing at least one uh you know gig review uh, of a venom gig for example um couldn't have t- actually told you which lineup it is though uh so so there was more of an awareness of that they were a thing and who they were but i don't think most people especially now would have listened to this album or any venom albums
0: um i'm trying to think of like other fandoms that i'm in and like what a parallel would be maybe like if you grew up on 80s slasher horror movies but you haven't seen black christmas like as a as an influence on all on that like entire genre right and and just didn't it just wasn't part right, of your right. framework you, for yeah, that.
1: Yeah, you could be right. You've seen Friday the 13th, like, but you Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah or, or even
0: Halloween, right? And then, um, yeah, and then, like, not... not but
1: not seeing Black Christmas, yeah. Correct. No, That's, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, that's not a bad uh, analogy, actually. Um, the other thing, before we start talking about the album specifically, the other thing that I want to make very, very clear to everybody listening, because you keep hearing us talk about the sort of the satanic imagery and all that sort of thing, is that and Venom have been consistently clear about this throughout their entire career there's no you know inconsistency here right from the start it's an act it's entertainment it is like a horror movie We just mentioned horror movies it is like a horror movie they've always approached it in that like it's just we just do it because you know it's a subject for uh for us to base lyrics around it's they're not promoting satanism they're not as far as I know any of them actually Satanists, uh, you know, it is just, it's all an act, it's all theatre, uh, and certainly, you know, we are not trying to corrupt your children <laughs> or anything like that <laughs> in any way. Uh, you know, uh, if there are any Satanists listening out there, you know, hey, great, I, I don't care. Uh, frankly, you know, as a committed, died in the wool atheist, I don't give a shit what you believe. Um, so, yeah, but we are... I mean,
0: it's, to me, like, it it's... Uh... I struggle with the whole idea, like, because this comes up a lot when we talk about Christian metal, you know, and people being like, well, I'll never listen to Christian metal because of the themes of it and stuff like that. And it's like, but you're probably not a Satanist either. And you're listening to this stuff here. Like, to me, it's all theater, right? It's like, I think we've talked about this before. Heavy metal is professional wrestling. So whatever we're talking about here is professional wrestling in terms of it is, it's all part of the package. And so I never even back then, like and I grew up Catholic and I went to Catholic school and everything like that, like I never even in listening to Slayer or listening to like it it was never even a consideration for me that like, oh these, these guys are Satanists and they're right, right. But you're absolutely right. I mean the reaction to, to, to the lyrics and the reaction to the image and everything like that, there was a whole Anti movement against it, and so you do have to kind of have that conversation of like it is an act, it is theatrics and everything like that, but like it's all theatrics.
1: Yeah, well, no matter what it is, yeah, the Cannibal Corpse are not mass murderers. You know, (laughs) are not going around slaughtering (laughs) people after their gigs or something. It's yeah, it's just an act.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and like uh, Tobias from Ghost is not the reincarnation of the same. You know, uh, different. uh, You know. cult leader every time that a new album comes out or something like that. Yeah, it's like but I mean put this in the context of the satanic panic and put this in the context of yeah. like uh you know, and so here here I am a kid who's, you know, listening to heavy metal, playing Dungeons and Dragons and uh like I and going to Catholic school, right? And so it, to me like there was that whole time of like it it was taken And we're seeing a lot of that today, too, obviously. But I think there was definitely a time in the 80s where it was like there was a real panic.
1: Oh, there was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have the Catholic school thing, but yeah, the same. I was a heavy metal fan, played Dungeons and Dragons and and stuff like that. And also into computer games and also just walked around wearing black the whole time because I was also a goth. Uh, And so, yeah, you can imagine, (laughs) you know, if anybody religious looking upon me would just go like, well, you're damned. Uh, But uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's the way teen rebellion goes, isn't it?
0: Right. And certainly for, for Venom's approach in 1981, they knew oh, that cool. yeah. by having this lyrical content and, and this sort of overall atmosphere and image that they were trying to create, this was another layer of extremity that they could push upon in what they were trying to do. As, you know, again, them thinking that metal was lame at the time and punk was dead at the time, it's like, what, what can we push? And so that's absolutely a huge part of it.
1: Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the album specifically. As I said, it's recorded in 1981. It's 40 minutes long. Uh, There are 11 tracks, although one of them is only one minute long. Uh, You know, it's more of a sort of intro to uh, another track than a track by itself, to be honest. Um, And as I mentioned before, this album wasn't supposed to be an album. (laughs) So they recorded their first sort of, uh, say, EP. It was only three tracks, but, you know, their EP demo. That's the one that uh, Brian mentioned. Um, Jeff Barton picked all three tracks for his uh, songs of the week. And then they put out a single, a seven inch single, which was, I believe uh, in league with Satan on say side one, and live like an angel, die like a devil on yeah. side two. And that actually did really well. Like, Far, far better than uh, anybody expected. Kronos, uh, in one interview I read, said that, uh, because he was, as I mentioned, he was working at the studio. He was working for NEAT, the record label that put this out at the time, as uh, an assistant engineer and uh, recorder. And he... He said in an interview that he's pretty certain after he blagged the studio time and convinced the label boss to put out the 7-inch that the guy put it out there just to basically shut him up, expecting that it would do nothing, nobody would buy it, and, you know, it would basically shut Cronus up and make him go away. And, of course, that's not what happened at all. (laughs) It was actually really quite popular, thanks in no small part to Jeff Barton, and also just that, again, nobody had ever heard anything quite like this before. And so then they were like, The studio owner uh, came back and went, or the label owner, I should say, came back and said, Okay, I think you need to make an album. And so they booked more studio time, again, which they didn't pay for. uh, And they basically blagged by Kronos agreeing to work late on other bands' projects. So he really. Like, and it wasn't even that much, that expensive, like the studio time at that time was not that expensive, but they just, they were flat broke, they had no money. And so he basically threw himself into working, you know, 18, 19, 20 hour days for God knows how long to sort of earn the uh, studio time to make these early recordings. And they recorded uh they'd already got two tracks like in league with satan and live like an Angel, die like a devil are on this album and then they recorded another eight tracks over three days as i mentioned uh and as i say they were meant to be and then they they sent them off going like these are the demos of the tracks we want to do for the album uh gave them to the label boss and the label boss just went there you go there's your album and put it out (laughs) (laughs) so that's partly why this sounds so scuzzy because it wasn't meant to be an album they didn't think they were recording the actual album they were just recording demos but of course that's why it's got so much energy because they're practically just playing it
0: live biggest favor anyone ever did them
1: oh totally yeah no, I mean, yes. I mean, thank goodness he did that because, yeah, it's got that same energy as Black Sabbath's first album, which was literally recorded live. Uh, I mean, I think with with Sabbath, it wasn't just that they recorded each track live. Uh, if I recall correctly, they literally recorded the album. That, that was their set. And they just recorded the whole thing in one go through, uh, which is mind-blowing, really. Um, and that's why, yeah, you have this incredible energy combined with... <laughs> mistakes, bad tempo, uh, like terrible timekeeping on some of the tracks, uh, some not great solos, and uh, actually quite a few not great solos, let's be honest. Uh, But also, yeah, as I say, this terrible production, but in combination with this amazing energy, this fantastic sort of forward momentum that the whole album has. It is, I I like to say, it's the sound of a band who don't know what the hell they're doing, but they are determined to do it anyway. And I love that.
0: It is just a steamroller. Like it, it is the the energy on this album is just so awesome.
1: It's infectious, as far as, well.
0: as yeah. Like just overall, I I do feel like I wouldn't even say it's. I mean, there are definitely parts of this album where, from a musical standpoint, you can hear that they do know what they're doing. Um, but I think that is never. A priority.
1: It's, ne- it's never like, the point. Is it? It's no. never the priority, right? <laughs> which
0: is like, in and of itself, is just so. Which I think is like a, I I would say Motorhead is much tighter, you know, in terms of oh yeah their no, stuff. No, no. Mo- but I also feel like Motorhead is you know everything louder than everything else. Like they're, they're also like their intent is not to. Uh. Blow you over with their musicality. No. Their intent is to blow you over, right? <laughs> because they're Motorhead. But you know what I mean? And yeah, like no,
1: virtuosity th- is never the point. A hundred percent.
0: And so I feel like that—that that to me is one of the biggest influences of Motorhead that I hear on this album is just like the you commit, well, like Motorhead commits to. You just commit to blowing everyone away and i feel like that's the same thing with this venom album is like we are committing 100 percent. it doesn't matter yo you made a mistake it doesn't matter we we are committing we're moving forward the this show is what's goes happening on. yeah yeah the I mean, show goes y- on y-
1: you're absolutely right but also uh like they are on record as admitting that they were not great musicians when they started like you know they they had big musical ambitions but they were not you know, sort of very great technical musicians at all. Mantis, the guitarist, says, uh, he claims that when he recorded this album, he knew one scale. He knew the pentatonic scale and that was it. Uh, And other than that, he knew power chords and he knew how to bend strings. And that was basically enough to get them through (laughs) this, you know, all of these songs. Uh, And honestly, I mean, I could believe it, you know, listening to it. Yeah, it's not. Again, it's not virtuoso, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be powerful and and that it it does have.
0: And I feel like that also goes back to a lot of these early albums from all the bands that we mentioned at the top of the show of like, and and to varying degrees, some obviously very talented musicians and a lot of that stuff. But it was a situation where a lot of first albums, the, the individual musicians were not They were still on their way up. Yeah. You know, they were still putting it together. They were still defining their own style. They were still learning their instruments. And so it is uh, for a lot of bands of that era, they got musically better as they went along. But again, much like the production, something then gets also lost along the way. And And I say this as like a Megadeth band, which the technicality of that band is one of my favorite things about it. And yet the first album um you know and metallica's kill them all like there's something about those albums there's something about i've listened to fistful of metal the other day and like just the raw energy that is what so many of these bands captured in those in that first album is just the the raw energy and totally. then the other stuff came along as time went on
1: all right well let's Get into the album, then start talking about the individual tracks. So we'll tr- start, of course, with track one Sons of Satan.
0: I would say this is a statement of intent. Do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was so struck by, because again, the headspace I was in of like, oh man, I have really, I have to reevaluate sort of where these guys fit in the foundational, you know, elements of everything that I love about this genre. I'm hearing the Four Horsemen in here. I'm hearing Hit the Lights in here. Um, Obviously, I'm hearing Motorhead. In here but it just like it's a statement of intent on every level like it's just super aggressive it is just pummeling and then the lyrics are just so over the top (laughs) that you know hell has deceived you you were so blind join venom's legions because we're going wild yeah um i could just imagine like them playing this in front of a, a you know a venue full of rabid fans and just people going absolutely crazy. But yeah, it's just three minutes and 38 seconds of this is what you're going to get from the rest of this album.
1: It Totally is yeah. I mean, we talk about that all the time, don't we? At first, you know, the first track is so important in terms of setting out the stall, and this this really sets out the stall. Kronos. Uh, I read an interview where he said quite an old interview as well, so it might actually be true because uh, <laughs> it was closer to the time uh, where he he said that he insisted that this be the first track on the album because it opens with such a bang, like straight in, no messing around. Absolutely, you know, speed, volume, and aggression right from the get-go. Uh, and that's absolutely true. Yeah, it, it, that's why it is such a great opening track, because it does all of that. I mean, it is very motorhead, uh, right down yeah. to the, the the drums even, a very sort of D-beat style, um, which Filthy in Motorhead used to do a lot. But yeah, no, you know, that's no criticism of it at all. Um, I do love, Cronus's vocal delivery is absolutely all over the place in this track he is so out of time on some of these lines (laughs) so like not in rhythm that it just cracks me up uh but again that kind of for me that adds to the raw energy of it because it it sounds live it sounds like you're listening to this band playing live you know and
0: like i'd listen to a song like this in in his the way he delivers it which to me again just speaks to like raw energy as opposed to i'm supposed to be on this beat or on this time it's just like i'm <laughs> i'm in the moment yeah <laughs> i'm in the song and i'm just spitting these words out the whole time but like this to me is heavier and more aggressive than like the most aggressive cookie monster uh yeah. you know vocals yeah. and stuff like like i i don't need the polish i just like to me there's just something that comes across in his delivery that just you feel it well and
1: i've said before that i'm you know i'm a big fan my favorite style of metal vocal is the sort of the shouted growl like i like i uh, like growling but i like it to feel like it's being projected uh you know lemmy does that um uh Rob Flynn from Machine Head does that, you know, that sort of there's effort and sort of projection behind the growl. That's my and he absolutely does that. I mean, he, the actual growl itself is not all that great, but he is definitely sort of shouting and bellowing this stuff out and yeah, again, as you say that just makes it feel all the more energetic. I mean, there's Yeah, even, he's
0: not holding anything back. <laughs> like you're getting it all.
1: <laughs> it's really not. There's a bit in the first pre-chorus as well where I mean, I don't know what this is. It's really difficult to tell what he's actually saying, but it honestly sounds like he's just done the sort of, uh, no, not the first pre-chorus, sorry. It's um, after the chorus. Sorry, it's post-chorus. It sounds like they've just played the chorus and he just like sort of leans back, comes off mic and shouts to the others, it's going Great. That's what I,
0: <laughs> I have to go
2: back and listen it's, to. That. I don't
1: know if that's actually what it's, like, but that's what it sounds like, and it is totally because of the way this record was made. You're like, it might actually be that. <laughs> it could.
0: Well, he does have a line, uh, "sent you to the grave," in here, so.
1: Yeah, have a listen to it. It's after the first chorus when they chords, okay. when they start doing the descending chords. And then you suddenly hear him like quite quiet and it sounds like he just turns to the guitarist or someone and goes, it's going great. You could,
2: you could
0: see him giving the thumbs up. Right, like,
1: yeah. Keep it up. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. Um, but yeah, I mean, what else can you say about this track? I say It's musically, yeah, it's not great. The tempo is over, all over the place. The track is basically the start that slow breakdown in the middle and then the first part all over again they literally play the entire first half of the song again identically for the second half that's all it is uh and when they come back and play it it's faster than it was at the start they don't even match <laughs> well but time then it goes like properly. but it's again, so like great. the
0: song is a call to action right like it it is uh you know join venom's legions cuz we're going wild yeah. like there, it is such a statement of intent of like Get on board. This is what you're getting.
1: Well, and there's almost a full minute of climax as well. You know, the sort of when they get to the point of okay, everybody's just like slamming the guitars and the the drummers like hitting the cymbals and everything. That goes on for a minute.
0: (laughs) Which I mean is so Metallica, right? I mean, and very
1: Motorhead as well. Yeah, a
0: hundred percent. And so, like, but it's
1: like if you're not in. If if you get to the end of this track and you're like, meh, I don't know, then forget it. <laughs> you, you know, if you're not in by the end of this one, you never will be.
0: Which is what a first track should do. Totally. It, you know, as we've talked, like it should it should give you what you can expect from the rest of the album, but it also like you'll you should know by that point. Like, <laughs> yeah, am I am I buckling in for this ride? And yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: It it is a triumph of naivety over, uh, you know virtuosity and and i'm definitely here for that
0: but just imagine like putting this like just getting this album, not having heard them before getting oh God, this album put
1: that on yeah jesus
0: and just put that on and it's just a punch in the face immediately
1: yeah
0: <laughs> like it is such a such a great like it's a great opening song
1: i actually do you know what i can sort of I can make a slight comparison with that because that is kind of how I felt when I first listened to uh, Wolverine Blues by Entombed.
0: Do you I remember? thought you were going to say Hungry by White Lion, but sure, yeah, no. Um,
1: <laughs> but you remember when we did the Entombed episode, I said, like, I would yeah. never heard any Entombed before at all, but the reviewing Kerrang! was so effusive and made it sound so much like an album that I would enjoy that I just went out and bought it uh you know effectively sight unseen or rather sound unheard uh and that was kind of when i put it on the the first track that was kind of the effect that first track had on me it just but yeah punched me in the face and i was like holy shit i am in uh so yeah i imagine as you say that's what it must have been like for somebody in 1981 listening to sons of satan for the first time for sure all right track two welcome to hell
0: just an absolute instant classic the first time i heard it
1: it's great Um, isn't it it's it's
0: got to to me like this is where when i talked about before wasp motley crew like twisted sister that this to me i hear in this song looks that kill from motley crew i also hear two minutes to midnight from iron maiden oh in here as well and but it, but it also has like a Judas Priest vibe, and then the whole like hell, like that to me. I immediately thought of Ghost, right? Because Ghost does that to great effect now in a lot of their stuff. That sort of whispered, uh, almost like d- dying breath, um, sort of thing, well, or, or and, like
1: the devil whispering in your ear.
0: Yeah, like, but just like the the whole. Um, yeah, just the whole, like, atmosphere that it builds in the song and stuff like that. Uh, it, in such an aggressive song, right? But it does—this one has a real groove to it. It does. I think, yeah. And um, and I like it as the second song, because the first song is just a—it's a freight train. And this song locks into a groove mm. in a different way. Still super aggressive, and— And they do some really cool stuff with this. Like, one of my favorite parts of the song is where you have the the female narrator who is, you know, just reading Psalm 23 in there. And then, like, partway through it, he just comes in and starts talking over her. (laughs) Like— like, it's like everything drops out, and she's and you can very clearly hear it. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, like, leave your souls at his feet. Like, he just comes in yeah. and like like, he's heard enough, <laughs> yeah. and he's just going to come back in and start talking. And I just, like, the first time I heard that, I laughed out loud. I'm like, this is amazing.
1: I would musically, I would put it closer to Judas Priest than Iron Maiden, uh, but it's a great riff as well that's the other thing this is i think
0: it's the riff from two minutes to midnight that clicked in my brain i was like wait a second that sounds like an iron maiden song to me and then i went looking and i was like yeah it does it sounds like two minutes to midnight to me
1: but it is a fantastic riff like a really it's a great riff yeah one one of the best on the album i think and yeah i mean it's uh talking about sort of the one two tracks one and two i've talked about this a lot um paradise lost there you go there's your drink for this episode um (laughs) do this a lot and i talked about that when we did the Paradise Lost episode, one of the things I love about how they order their albums so often is that the first track is something sort of big and bombastic and epic. And then the second track is the catchy one. That's the one that you think, Oh, this could have been a single. Uh, And that's exactly what this album's like as well. Yeah. And actually I, I know that the Paradise Lost guys were Venom fans. So it's entirely possible that, you know, that might have been some kind of subconscious influence. But yeah, it's exactly that. Sons of Satan, like you say, is like a steamroller. And then Welcome to Hell, is really catchy. I mean, a lot of their songs are catchy. And I think shows that they these guys can play. Yeah. Well, it shows that they can write as well. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, Great point. Yes. Because, you know, even though they have this sort of limited playing ability, what they can do is write a really great song that is yeah catchy while also being heavy and aggressive. And as we've talked about before, that's not always the easiest thing to do. You know, right. Motörhead were superb and Lemmy was an absolute master at it, but these guys are pretty good at it too because a lot of the tracks on this album are actually really catchy despite being yeah, heavy and aggressive.
0: Well, and again, like all those bands that I mentioned earlier, like I could create a playlist and this song would be so at home on that playlist yeah. alongside, you know, slayer and maiden but also wasp and motley crew like it would fit in that playlist it would like yeah it, so yeah this is a great song this is definitely one of my favorite songs on the album for sure
1: i will say the the moment of amusement for me apart from when he mistimes one of the hells uh on the chorus <laughs> um is the sudden double kicks that started about two minutes in like for for no really good reason whatsoever there's just like four lines of like holy shit i'm going to do the double kicks <laughs> and i think it's yeah. the only t- place that you You hit. don't know
0: it, that might happen in hell it's
1: the only time You have the, been there yet <laughs> it's the only time he does the double kicks anywhere on the album as far as i remember uh it, it's just like again it, it cracks i love it but it cracks me up cuz just like he's like fuck it i'm going for it <laughs> but <Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da. laughs> it's great uh, but yeah really great song really catchy song uh, as is track three Schizo together mysteries
2: around.
0: This one reminds me of Twisted Sister. Under the Blade, Burn in Hell. Um there's I love when like there it's like everything kind of drops out except for the chugs, and he's like creeping and searching for victims, oh, yeah. unknowing. So good, dude. Um and then like when they kind of slow down for but come the night, you'll freeze with fright, axe drawn high, another dies. Like from a, to your point, from like a writing standpoint, like there's little things that they're doing in these songs that are that are switching it up, you know, and I think each one of these songs so far, even though I think it would be easy to just be like this whole album's a freight train, right? It's just like it's just a ball of aggression that you you know, you you lock in and you just you just ride the wave for the whole thing. But these three songs are all very different. Yeah. 1, 2, and 3 are all very different even though there's a clear, you know, line going through them yeah. but yeah but
1: there's, um, there's a commonality but you're right they are they're, they're all distinct um yeah it's kind of bluesy this one the riff yeah. i think you know another one where i think the motorhead influence is quite clear and yeah that chorus as you say when it slows down and everything it is like the night draws nigh with darkened skies uh it doesn't even mention the title the actual word schizo doesn't appear anywhere in this song which is you know sort of Sometimes unusual in uh, metal around this period, so you know that's nice. Um, This has got one of the uh, terrible solos from (laughs) Mantis that kind of uh, yeah displays that yeah as I say you know not the greatest guitarist in the world, but he's going to go for it anyway. Um, Oh, and yeah, the the bit you mentioned with the creeping and searching for victims unknowing. Do you know in all the years I've listened to this album? I'd never quite thought and the thought just struck me that I wonder how much of an influence Kronos's vocal style was on Martin Walkier of Skyclad and Sabbath. uh, because huh. th- just that bit in particular, I mean, once I'd had the thought, then the whole album, I was like, oh, actually, I can see influence there. But that bit in particular, there's something about the timing and the phrasing and the rhythm of how he delivers those words that made me think of some of Martin's work on uh, Sabbath, especially, but also in, in Skyclad. Uh, so yeah, I wonder, I expect there probably was a bit of influence there.
0: And I think lyrically, it is one of the more... I think it's one of the better songs on the album. Just in terms of like the the, the storytelling aspect right, of it, right. you know what I mean? Um there's a couple songs that I think do that a little bit better as opposed to just like I'm going to think of every horrible thing that I can just put in a line and you know like here right. the, it's telling a story. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it kind of elevates from some of the other lyrics on the album.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, this is kind of uh, a pay on to uh, horror movies essentially is yeah
0: it? it's a cautionary tale too like now I have warned you always look behind you you'll never know who, just who will be there that harmless looking deer may be the one to fear so never trust those you don't know you know it's just the whole uh, yeah the duality uh, piece yeah, yeah. For, throughout the whole song Well
1: and the and the slasher vibe um, oh for sure but, yeah but yeah yeah it's 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 a good one um, except this slasher uses
0: an axe which oh, yeah, is a nice yeah. twist from most slasher movies
1: that's true apart from so i married an axe murderer not really a slasher movie but you know (laughs) a good
0: movie good movie though at least at the time i have probably watched it in 20 years but when i saw it i enjoyed it
1: same here i haven't seen it since it came out don't really want to go back and revisit it in case it spoils my memories i remember enjoying it at the time that'll do me
0: (laughs) yep same
1: uh right track Four, right, so this is the one where technically track four is uh, an instrumental called Mayhem with Mercy, but it is literally just a minute of Mantas playing acoustic guitar and Abaddon banging a gong in the background occasionally. Yeah. And it doesn't even do anything particularly interesting with the guitar, it's just a sort of repeated phrase, isn't it? So I mean
0: other than basically saying, I can play guitar.
1: Right, yeah. See everyone? Like I can actually play. (laughs) Yeah,
0: like listen to this. Um and it's like just long enough for you to be like, okay, yeah, no, you're right. You can. Cool. Okay. And then boom, we're right into the next one.
1: Yeah. But again, it's not the most complex phrase that he's playing repeatedly anyway. Uh so yeah, we're gonna skip over that one because it's effectively an intro, as I say, to we'll call it track four, which is poison.
2: You're up to the core Everybody knows what you got, But they still go back for more You're everybody's favorite You're giving them all your time You're not a total disaster But when they sign the dotted line
0: Yeah, this one, to me, had another kind of Motley Crue, live wire vibe to it. Um,
1: Well, especially with the lyrics.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, (laughs) Your love is infectious, you're rotten to the core. Everybody knows what you got, but still they come back for more.
1: Yeah. I
0: think I slacked you a message while while we were preparing this week, and I'm like, it's really hard to tell what these guys are talking about in their songs like it's very nuanced i'm not really sure i might have to listen to it a few more times The lyrics are like, so
1: subtle yeah
0: yeah they're so subtle um yeah they're not um i mean i think everybody realizes that by now
1: i mean lyrically it hasn't you know it hasn't aged well um no
0: and like you look at this song compared to again the one before it which i thought was a little what was interesting from a storytelling standpoint. And then you get here and you're like, Oh, okay. All right.
1: Yeah. Right. This isn't even, there's not really a story here other than like he's no. caught the clap from a prostitute. Yeah, by the was, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, unfortunately this sort of lyric was not unusual at the time. Uh, you know, even bands I love like motorhead did plenty of tracks like this, unfortunately, but I will say musically, this is pretty great. I think it's full of energy. Yes. It's got a really sort of nice stripped down riff. Uh, the vocal delivery is actually really good. Kronos is like on time and in rhythm. Uh, and, you know, yeah, I think, it's
0: tighter, right? Tighter. Ex- exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Delivers uh, really well. I think in this one, and even the guitar solo on this one actually isn't too bad at all. So yeah, if you can sort of, you know, put aside the dodgy lyrics and just listen to it musically, I think this is actually a really good track.
0: And I think like you mentioned kind of being an archeologist, right. and, and, I think about that all the time when I think about like, oh, maybe I'll do a Wasp album. And like, then I'm like, God, but do I really want to revisit those <laughs>
1: <The> lyrics. <laughs> lyrics in that
0: song? and And there's a lot of early 80s, mid 80s stuff that it's like, man, I don't know if I want to, but I think in order to do that, like you have to just, it, it was what it was at the time.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, it is tough to go back and, and see some of the lyrics like and to me like this stuff is worse than the satanic stuff you know as far as like the the theatrics of that stuff is easier to dismiss than you know some of these lyrics that are tough but there's so many albums and bands of that era that we would just never be able to revisit if we yeah you know if we weren't going to revisit anything that had questionable lyrics
1: yeah no, and i agree yeah i mean i'd rather listen to you know an album of satanic uh, stuff than, than these lyrics, but you know, there you go. Uh, but like I say, musically, yeah, really good track.
0: Um, yep. so track f- and one of the longer oh, ones oh. on the album, right? Cause I mean, it's most uh, of these other ones so far have been like three minutes, three and a half, this is yeah, four and, a half, four and, half and a half
1: minutes. Yeah. You're right. I think it might be sort of joint second for the longest song on the album, actually. Yeah. Yep. I mean, not that any of them are particularly long, but I mean, but again, that speaks to, that used to be the case. We talked about you know um, this on when we did the Sabbath Paranoid album. Um, you know, a lot of metal tracks used to be sort of radio length, I suppose, for want of a better description. Yeah. And it wasn't actually really until thrash. Now that I think about it, it was that sort of you know the early thrash guys who started pushing track length, really to the sort of the sort of lengths that you would previously have associated with say progressive rock bands yeah. rather than uh, metal which was much more kind of even though it wasn't getting played on the radio they were writing songs that were more sort of yeah radio length uh you know three three and a half minutes at the most
0: and i think for the like certainly for the early thrash bands it's like they knew they weren't getting played on the radio so it was right. like <laughs> uh, they leaned so, into that i mean remember how, what a big deal it was when metallica did their first video
1: because oh, it yeah. was
0: just like it was just a complete dismissal of radio or video until a certain point in time.
1: Yeah, well, and even then, though, th- that was because that it was one, wasn't it? it was their yeah. first video, yeah, right? It was one. And and didn't don't they cut out the entire middle section of the song?
0: I believe they did.
1: Yeah, I actually because it was bought too long. the
0: VHS tape <laughs> of the video. I owned the the VHS of the one video oh. and i forget what else was on it and
1: i'll bet that i'll bet that tape cost you like 10 bucks or something for one video didn't it for sure yeah <laughs> they used to rip us off so bad with vhs prices
0: but i just remember what a huge deal that was that metallica did a video oh yeah it was like holy crap um and for a first video it was pretty good but yeah you're right it was definitely not the full song
1: no uh moving on then track five live like an angel die like a devil
0: This is another... Uh, this is the one that reminded me of Antichrist by Slayer. Oh, right. uh, Okay. But you get a little bit of everything in this song. There's a little bit of bluesy feel to it. Definitely Motorhead influence. You get a little whammy bar action in this uh, song. And I also feel like this is this is like their their tour song. You know what I mean?
1: Right, of right. like,
0: live like an angel, die like a devil, got a place in hell reserved for me. Uh, just like live in the rock and roll lifestyle um life on the road sort of thing so in that way i almost feel like it's the one of the more motorheady oh it's very
1: motorhead yeah i songs mean the on riff, the, album. the riff is very motorhead as well yeah, yeah yeah and yeah motorhead obviously wrote loads of songs about being on the road and stuff i mean yeah there's lines in here loving hard and getting high hell's the place i'm gonna die <laughs> right
0: yeah it's like the whole like live fast die young sort of theme in there so yeah but uh, like Definitely a hard rocker, like you said. Strong Motorhead vibe in this one. Um, I think four was, minutes long,
1: and this was the first single. Oh, was it? Yeah, really? th- this was the B side of the first single. The A side was "In League with Satan."
0: Oh, right, 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 right. And the yes, B side was right. "Live
1: Like an Angel, Die Like a Devil." Um, and I'm pretty sure. That they just used the versions from the single and put them on the album. Because if you look at the album sleeve, uh those two tracks, this one and In League with Satan are credited to a different producer. Um so I'm pretty sure that they didn't re-record them for this album and they just took those masters uh from the you single. You gotta be
0: efficient with that studio time Well exactly, when you've only got three days, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can hear it as well. I think that like those two tracks sound quite different to the rest of the album, even down to Kronos's vocals and his vocal sound. They actually do sound quite different to all the other tracks.
0: I need to go back and listen now with that in mind.
1: There are also, um, I think, there are motorbike sounds in this. It's kind of hard to make out again because of the sort of muddy production. But I think there are motorbike sounds uh, about sort of two thirds of the way through. That play in this track, and I, I've often wondered if that's kind of, you know, even though they don't reference the Hell's Angels directly, I've wondered if that's meant to be, you know, a sort of oh yeah, you know, double meaning of the angel thing. Okay, because uh, again, Motorhead were big with the Hell's Angels. You know, Hell's Angels loved them. Uh, used to go to their shows. Uh, Lemmy wrote a song for the Hell's Angels. Um, you know, so they were definitely a part of that. That punk metal crossover scene at the time.
0: Very interesting. I had never even thought of that.
1: It's total speed metal as well this one, isn't it? Like you, you talk about the influence on the thrash bands and the sp- and the speed metal stuff, uh, and I th- figure this track has to be one of those uh quintessential influences on that style of metal because I think it might be. well oh, actually it's not the fastest track on the album. We haven't got to that one yet, but it's certainly up there, isn't it?
0: Well, and and to me, like it, it did make me think of like Slayer early Slayer and like going back and figuring out like where where what song does this kind of remind me of? But also like Kronos in some ways it reminds me of early Tom Area, like without the screams. Like obviously Tom right. Area was very good at like putting those screams in, but just like the that sort of growly, shouty delivery in a lot of ways, I feel like reminds me a lot of Tom Area.
1: Mm. All right, well, that's the end of side one. Uh, What a side it was. That was a journey. (laughs) It really was, wasn't it? Yeah. And to finish, like, at full speed uh, with Live Like an Angel as well. Yeah. Crikey. But then you flip it over and you get to track six, Witching Hour.
0: atmosphere in the beginning you've got the sort of thrumming of a bass string it sounds like you got the fire crackling you've got it it just has the vibe of like summoning something right from the depths and i think it does a great job especially like as the first song on the second side of like building atmosphere um, yeah, I mean, this was another one I felt like that had a bit of a Tom Maria delivery also made me think of Phantom Lord, um, Oh, from Metallica in this one. Um, but yeah, just a great, like it serves as almost like a palate cleanser from the last song in the beginning of this sets the atmosphere and then like kicks the door in like it. It's a good first song on the second side.
1: Yeah. That, that bass drone to start it is just great like so, so very atmospheric um and yeah i mean it's i hadn't thought of phantom lord but i have got in my notes like it's easy to see that metallica were fans when you listen to this track and the riff on this track i think you know not- there
0: was a uh in an interview i don't i can't remember which one it in but but they were talking about like a quote from Mustang about like him and and uh hetfield like driving in the car down the coast listening to venom oh um at one point i'll have to look back and see what interview it was in but yeah in the very early days
1: yeah as i say yeah you listen to tracks like this and i think it's fairly fairly clear Um, for sure uh i think the lyrics here are great i think these are some of the best lyrics on the album actually um it's apparently they often close concerts with this track um and i think it's not hard to see why you know it's uh well i mean it's a great track obviously you've got the shout of witching out which you can well imagine the crowd getting into Um, and like
0: shutting the lights off as the as you build the atmosphere and then like it exploding yeah for sure
1: yeah um, but as I say, just genuinely good lyrics and good vocal delivery as well. And that there's something about that downward step, that downward dive when he sings, "All hell breaks loose," and the music goes down behind him. I don't know. Yep. Th- there's some that is really effective to me. It's such a simple thing, but it kind of feels like you're descending into the pit. You know?
0: It, yeah. Well, it goes back to what I was saying about a couple of the other songs on this album, where they're doing they they you could almost if you just took it as a whole, like miss out on those little nuggets of little things that they're doing that are very clever. Yeah. Within the song that are really, again, like punctuating the atmosphere that they're trying to build.
1: This track also reminded me in some ways, not necessarily musically, but in some ways actually of the Stormwitch album. Uh part, oh, wow. partly partly because of the imagery, I suppose. You know, the lyrical sure. imagery. But also there's something about it that's got something about this track in particular that has that sort of same naivety that the best tracks on that album have, where again, it's just kind of like, you're not entirely sure whether they realize that it's cheesy or not, but it doesn't matter because they're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And they're going to do it with 100% commitment. Uh,
0: Right, It's the commitment, man.
1: Yeah. It's uh, so, yeah, I'd say I love this track. This is a perennial favorite as well. A lot of people will name this track as their favorite Venom track of all time because it's uh yeah it's regarded as a bit of a classic like i say that it's one of those i think i saw an interview where they said um Kroner said that they must have played it like over a thousand times like you know he can't remember a gig where they haven't played witching hour basically yeah um so actually probably even more than a thousand what am i saying <laughs> well i
0: mean if you're making a short list of songs on this album that you'd want to hear in concert that's absolutely near the top of it's the list. up there
1: with them isn't it yeah yeah um but do we feel the same way about track seven which is one thousand days in sodom
0: I mean this one it's their most like conceptual song on the it's like their mm. most uh prog rocky psychedelic but also trying to tell a story you know song on the album and it is is it the
1: longest song in the album 4:36 No No the longest song is actually the very last track would you believe
0: Oh okay yeah um you're right Absolutely. But but
1: it is one of the longer songs for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I would say like one of the only songs that feels like a departure from a lot of what's around it.
1: Yeah. I you know what I mean? Fair.
0: You've got, you've got sort of the funky bass and cowbell thing going on at two minutes. Um, It just feels a little bit, not that it feels completely out of place, but it definitely feels a little bit different. And I think this is the one that feels like they, they were trying to like go bigger Uh,
1: that's really funny you say that because yeah my notes are that this track feels it's the one track where it feels that like their musical ambition is beyond their reach you know that like they clearly have some grand musical ideas in mind for this one you know they want this to be i don't know their sort of rhyme of the ancient mariner even yes even though it's like
0: their iron maiden and i put my first note was uh Priest and Maiden was the first note that I put on this. But yeah, it was like they were trying to do that, but they didn't quite get there. They
1: don't quite pull it off, yeah. And I was going to say, and I know and the Emperor obviously came after this, but it, I just meant in terms of, yeah, that sort of, it feels like this is them trying to be a bit prog rock. And yeah. it, they just don't quite pull it off. Um, uh, also just the time like Kronos insists I've seen some interviews with him where he insists that all his sort of lyrical contradictions are deliberate uh I mean you know take that with a pinch of salt but this one bear in mind that uh 120 days of Sodom Desaads book was banned in the UK in the 1970s it was banned right up until I think the 1990s or something so there's no way that he would have actually been able to read it uh so I and the whole song obviously is not about that, it's about the biblical city. But given yeah. the title, I don't know. I think that he just heard that title and assumed that the book was about the city, uh, yeah. and sort of that kind of mashed them together without realizing. Uh, which I just find kind of again naively amusing. Um, it's a good chorus because it's kind of hard to fuck it up, really, isn't it? Um, the bass solo is very ill-advised, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, I'm never going to push back against a bass solo, but I can see where you're coming from.
1: <laughs> but I do like the guitar solo quite a bit in this one. It is very atmospheric. Again, not not sort of virtuosic, but very atmospheric. Um, but I think this is kind of this is the clunker on the album. Really, this is the one track where you're like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this one.
0: I think I'm in agreement with you on that. Like, if you if not that, I would drop any song from this album because I do feel like it just as a whole, top to bottom, is great. But this is the one that just it, to me, I get, departure is the thing that just kept popping in my like. This is just a little bit too far afield of I think what the rest of the album is going for.
1: Yeah, yeah. Also, if you dropped it, it would only be thirty-five minutes long. <laughs> you're getting true. You're getting down to Slayer length then. <laughs> right. Uh, track eight then, Angel Dust.
2: This
0: one is a freaking straight-ahead banger. Oh yeah, um, this made me feel a little Twisted Sister under the blade here. The solo reminded me a little bit of JJ French on on this song, and so it, I definitely was getting like a Twisted Sister vibe. But yeah, this this one is we're right back into like straight-ahead aggression.
1: Yeah, it's fast-paced metal mayhem. This one basically isn't it? It's uh, yep. and this is the shortest track on the album. This is two minutes thirty-nine. Uh,
0: and, and even the lyrics, like, living, running, out on the streets at night, searching, hoping for the right connection, because I need it, want it, like, that, even just the lyrics are, like, sound bitey. Yeah, 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 Like, yeah, they're yeah. not, we're not trying to tell a big story here. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's not, like, these aren't long, well-constructed sentences.
0: It's the sense of, but again, like, from a writing standpoint, it is the whole, like, sense of urgency, right? Like, needing a fix sort of thing that I think the lyrics do capture in that way. Yeah,
1: totally. Uh, this is one of the ones that you can hear on uh, the demo with the original singer if you find that uh, link link on YouTube by the way they play it a bit slower on that demo Um, and yeah sort of it's the one where you can make a direct comparison between uh, uh, what was his name again Clive (laughs) Jesus Christ Clive Archer Uh, yeah that's it Clive Archer Um, and Kronos Um, and like I say you can hear that he's clearly a better singer like for a start when he does the yeah Things he can actually go yeah. high and hit the notes, whereas Kronos, <laughs> bless him, cannot. Uh, but a- again, like going back to what I said before about that, it's also just a bit more generic, you know, it's a bit more standard. Whereas when Kronos sings it, it may not be technically as good, but y- you're in no mistake who you're listening to. Um and you know it has that presence that vocal presence so yeah it's it, it's a solid rocker this one like a like i say fast shortest song on the album short sharp shock as it were uh, and
0: i think a good one to follow Thousand Days and Sodom. yes like it. It's like that one took you a little bit far afield. It's like this one locks you right back in. So I think that you can fully appreciate the next song.
1: Yeah, totally. I I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's good. You know, song ordering. Um. Uh, and also, but especially because uh, the next track actually was kind of is obviously much slower, uh, and so wouldn't have benefited from being right next to 1,000 Days in Sodom, I think. And that's track nine, which is In League With Satan.
0: song rules like this this song is like the most the, if if the first song on the album was a statement of intent i feel like this is the mission statement of this right album right well and this I was mean, their just first, like
1: this was their first single as well remember
0: it makes perfect <laughs> sense to me yeah that makes perfect sense <laughs> to me this is like everything that would offend someone that you would want to offend with everything that your band is trying to do is this song. Yeah. Right. It's the most trolly anti authority, you know, song for people who are going to clutch their pearls at it. Like it is, it is all of that in one song. So it's like, it is the song that you put out that is going to fire up people who are going to love this and is going to freak the crap out of everybody who you would want to offend by this. And um not to mention, very catchy. nice galloping riff, great chorus, uh, very anthemic. Totally could see how this would play amazingly live. Um it's just it's just great.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the whole like evil in league with Satan. Yes, dude, just the delivery of it
0: is really like you could fist pump (laughs) it in the air sort of thing. Like it, it is it is that song for sure. So to have this like as song 10 on the album is like a treat.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because you've gone through this whole album and then like, this is song 10. I,
1: I actually would have put this, I would have made this the final track if I was ordering this album. But You would have been
0: perfectly justified in doing that a hundred percent. Cause that would be a great, that is the type of track that would make you want to immediately listen to this whole album again.
1: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um. The backmasking, by the way, on this uh, oh, yeah. that opens it.
0: Well, that's what I'm talking about, dude. Like, it, it, like what? What else? There's no more boxes left to tick right. of a song that you would want to. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, it is the mission statement, right, of everybody that they're trying to piss off with this album. It's like, did we get the backtrack? We do. Okay, great.
1: Well, and it's kind of ironic that all those uh, there's so many bands get accused or had been accused of doing it to praise Satan when actually there was no such thing going on. And then Venom come along they're like, yep, yep, we'll do it. And this is a message directly from Satan. Uh, If you play it back, it says, it's uh, Kronos going, Satan raised in hell. I'm going to burn your soul, crush your bones. I'm going to make you bleed. You're going to bleed for me. (laughs)
0: Again, I'm not sure what he's really trying to say with that. Um, so oh. it's good that it's backtracked. Uh, Backmask.
1: I love it. Yeah, they're just like, no, fuck it. We will do backmasking, and it will be a satanic message. It will
0: be the. <laughs> it'll be exactly what you are afraid of it being. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's what I'm saying. It's like this. This is the most on the nose example of like if you picked up this album in a record store and you were a you know a parent who was didn't want your kid to listen to this it would be like i hope it doesn't have any of this well this song has all of yeah, that this is the it's song you're afraid thing. of yeah yeah <laughs> what are the things that you're afraid of yep we have that uh-huh that yep mm-hmm. yep that uh-huh yep and it's anthemic and your kid will never stop singing it yes all of that yeah in one song oh god can you <laughs> can
1: you imagine some little young
0: let me ask you a question some young kid for, for anybody to listening this to this episode right now <laughs> for anyone listening to this episode right now if you have listened to this album and I asked you to think of one lyric or one element that is repeating in your head. It is the chorus from this song <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. It is the earworm <laughs> from this whole thing. Like they did it. They, they did exactly what they set out to do with this song.
1: Oh, man. It's yeah, I love it. There's a goat is even a goat of Mendy's reference in there, which I'm always here for. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, just imagine like them sitting around going, "Man, if there's one thing we could get the kids chanting after they <laughs> listen to our music that'll really just absolutely make their parents and their teachers and and everybody freak out." Evil in league with Satan, yeah. like, just it's just like in terms of like their mission statements, it's like Chef's Kiss. Yeah, it really is.
1: Um, and yeah. it's, I mean, you mentioned the sort of galloping guitars. It's musically, it is so simple. But it works so well. That's the other thing. Like, yeah, it's got that sort of slow galloping rhythm. The drumming is really simple and almost sort of like a ritual or something. Kronos' vocals are really good on this one as well. Um,
0: It's Well, and he's a big Elvis fan, Kronos. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. That was one of his earliest influences in one of the interviews that I read. Interesting. That's where a lot of his musical stuff kind of started.
1: And yet, he didn't turn out like Glenn Danzig.
0: (laughs) No,
1: (laughs) and for the better in my opinion Um, yeah it's uh, but my point is that like even for yes they're ticking all the boxes and sort of making something blasphemous and everything but it's also just really well done it's really really well performed and well well written this one yeah
0: yeah I mean like this again if you took this song out from everything else that they're doing on the album you could see this song living on a much more well produced and tighter yeah. album, yeah, yeah, for sure, totally.
1: All right, as I say, I personally I, I would have ended the album with this, but uh, instead it's track uh, nine or ten, however you count them, and then the last track is "Red Light Fever."
0: kind of has like a big balls acdc vibe mm. to open it and then obviously gets much more aggressive to it becomes like Sabbath, Maiden, Motorhead, you know, vibe when the second guitar comes in for sure. Um yeah, it, it is uh this is a song that for whatever reason there is a particular song that it reminds me of and I can't remember it for the life of me. Oh,
1: okay. And that was
0: my note on this whole thing is like what is the song? that is kicking around in my head every time I listen to this one and I cannot remember it. And if I do remember, I'll post it in the comments or something. Cause there is like, for a lot of these other songs, I'm like, Oh, that reminds me of this. That reminds me of this. Like, but this song, it's like, it reminds me very specifically of one thing that I cannot remember. And it's driving me crazy.
1: Yeah. Well, that happened to me with the white lion. Help me. If you remember, there was one track. there. Yes. And I never, I never did remember which song it was.
0: (laughs) I can't place it, but it, it is really sticking. But yeah, like, um,
1: well the the that bent string in the opening riff makes me wonder and I genuinely don't know this if uh Dimebag was a venom fan because that oh. uh, that that's exactly the sort of thing he used to do you know exactly the sort of trick that he used to pull a lot and to great effect i mean it is really effective here i think um i don't think the rest of the song lives up to the intro unfortunately i think it starts really well yeah that bent string it sounds really great and kind of, you know, got me ready for something great. Uh, And then the rest of the song, I just don't think, you know, fits with that. Uh, I mean, dodgy lyrics again, but musically it's all over the place as well. Uh, I saw, I don't know where the review was from, but I saw somebody online quote a review of this that basically says the drums are the only thing holding the song together like the, every, everything else is just utter chaos and that's that's not inaccurate to be honest <laughs> like there's a one point towards the end where i'm pretty sure Kronos isn't actually singing at the right time and i don't mean his timing's bad i mean i think he literally starts singing in the wrong place on every line for for like the third or fourth verse <laughs> it's yeah it, uh, it's absolute the whole and then you got the speed up slow down thing at the end as well it, it is chaotic this track which is kind of fitting for the album and the band i suppose yeah um but as a final track yeah i it wouldn't have been my choice
0: i think it's a tough act to follow from the song before it true yeah and so if it wasn't you know like if this had come after um angel dust right then i think it would it would shine a little brighter. But I think when you had such a great song in, in league with Satan, like, and then come to this one, it's just, it's hard for it to be anything, but a little bit of a letdown. Um, but I think like with the rest of the album, it's very much in the same vibe. It's in the same ballpark as the rest of the album. And so it fit to me, it fits, you know, well with the overall vibe of the album, but as a closer, yeah, maybe not the best closer.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, yeah, I don't mean to say that it's out of step with the album at all. Not certainly in the way that something like A Thousand Days in Sodom is. Um, it, it definitely fits with the rest of the album. I just don't think it's one of the... I think this and this and basically one Thousand Days in Sodom are the two tracks that kind of are a little bit subpar compared to the others um, on the album. And it's, as a result, yeah, it's a shame that it is the, the closing track because I don't think they end with their best. Um, but still, it's... You know, it's only one. Try. Isn't
0: it also interesting how often there is kind of a misstep with the closer on the album? Like we talk yeah. about that a lot, yeah. right? Of like how you close the album, and I, I just feel like we've had a lot of conversations about like, oh, I might have swapped this one for this one, you know, in the closing of this album, or I think this one might have been a better closer for this one. Whereas, like, I feel like on average, most of the albums that we've listened to have an opening song that fits which is really important but it's the closer that's not as consistent with you know whether or not they really close the album in the way and and like obviously nowadays it's not as much of a big deal but back in the day it was like you know the four most important songs first song on the first side last song on the first side first song on the second side last song on the second side right um and it's just interesting to think about these albums you know in through that lens which of course they were made during that time where there was a side a side b well
1: and it's Um, it's kind of ironic as well i think that the bands that normally do that really well like when i think of the bands that are really good at track listing in order track listing i mean and and yeah putting good closes as well as good openers on their albums it's generally the bands that are more that that embrace the sort of theater and the drama of, yeah. of it more you know it's bands like and even getting away from metal you know everybody knows i'm a big genesis fan and one of the things that genesis were really really good at was song ordering like really really good uh, at just making sure that yeah as you say the opening song uh there's you know songs on either side of the disc turn that sort of thing and then the closing song fitted in those positions uh, phil collins used to do that for them uh, which I always find an amusing little factoid. <laughs> you know, he <laughs> apparently he was just really good at that, so they left him to it. Um, and yet, here is a band that absolutely embraces the theatre and the drama uh, and the storytelling and what have you of their music. And yet, yeah, didn't didn't achieve that uh, for one reason or another. It's it's very strange.
0: Yeah, but I mean the the certainly red light fever as the last song doesn't detract from the overall greatness of this album which just to to bring that all back full circle as someone who was not familiar with this album like i this is now firmly embedded in this era of metal for me like i now i so i'm super grateful that you nominated this album for us to, to dive into because i feel like there's like i said before there's been a missing piece for me that is now firmly established like where it needs to be as far as that early 80s um super influential and you know fits right in with all of these other albums that i grew up loving that will now be in the rotation and in the this is an album i will 100 percent listen to Along with all these other ones that I mentioned at the beginning, as far as like being of that era, for sure.
1: Which I'm delighted to hear all of this because, I mean, I know that you you don't mind Motorhead. uh, And, you know, musically, this is probably closer to Motorhead than anything else that we've covered on the show. But still, I didn't expect you to be into this album if i'm honest uh partly because of the terrible production (laughs) you know oh
0: it's one of my favorite parts of it (laughs) which which and when i talk about unlocking like it unlocked for me that like i think i like terrible production like i (laughs) like i really do like look at all those again show no mercy shout at the devil wasp fistful of metal killing is my business bonded by blood Maybe Bonded by Blood had a little bit better, but like most of those not known for their amazing production, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, as far as that goes. Uh, although Kill em All probably has better production than most production of the other ones good, that I actually, mentioned there. Yeah. 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 But, um, but Kill Em All ma- is able to maintain the energy, yeah, even with the better production. Whereas I think most of these other ones that we're talking about, like the production is part of the energy yeah. of... Of that. And so, but yeah, this to me fits right. Uh, I mean, as a foundational album for all of these other ones. So yeah, I real I loved it. Um, every time I listened to it, like I dug it more. And I love the commitment that these guys have to going just
1: 110%. And they still do, by the way. Or I should say, well, so the current situation is that Kronos is uh i should i was gonna say still it's actually once again because there was a period where he wasn't in the band in the it all gets very complicated but as of now and recent times he is once again the frontman, bassist vocalist of the band but with a different drummer and a different guitarist younger guys well not that much younger um and still you know sort of performing i don't know if they're putting out new albums actually i must admit i didn't check uh, but they're certainly still playing and still performing but uh mantus the guitarist also has a band called venom incorporated uh, i did see that yeah and that's him and other musicians and i think abaddon the original drummer was in that band for a while but then left a few years ago um so it all gets a bit Complicated and make sure if you want to go and see them, like make sure you're seeing the right one. Um, but my point there is that they are still committed, they are still doing this stuff, they are still playing it, even though they are, you know, old men now, they're like 60 odd years old now. They are still giving it 100, like, yep, this is us, this is what we want to do. And I think you kind of have to respect that,
0: absolutely. Yeah. And like, like I said, every time you see an interview with Chrono, he's like, Seems to have the same energy that he had in 1981 when they were, yeah, you know, getting interviewed and stuff like that. Like, he still seems like a cartoon character. He still seems, you know, uh, pretty, you know, pretty quick to take a jab at other bands. Like, clearly, I mean, I think genuinely, I'm sure he feels like Venom doesn't get the credit that they deserve for being so influential on like everything that's considered to be. To me, it goes back to the foundational thing. Like every, every band that is considered to be part of that foundation of what we currently think of as metal. I think he is right in saying that, you know, maybe they're not included in as many of those discussions as they should be.
1: Yeah. I'd agree with that completely. Yeah. He's um, ju- just out of interest, in, but incidentally, he, uh, which might explain some of the some of Kronos' attitude. He went to a school, and this was not uncommon at the time, where boxing was on the curriculum. Like that was genuinely part of like what you got taught at school, uh, part of physical exercise. And he was apparently quite good at it, and he's still basically a gym rat to this day. He's uh, apparently a very accomplished rock climber. Um, yeah, it's a very physical guy, and I think that kind he of really
0: shows. injured in a rock climbing that's right situation where like it took him i i think in whatever interview i was reading it said it took him a couple years of like physical therapy to really get back to a place where he was feeling like close to 100 percent. that's correct um, yeah
1: yeah but he is these days he's you know sort of fine and back in the gym and everything but yeah, yeah as i say he is a very basically a very physical guy and i think well, that kind of shows
0: And I mean, in a lot of different interviews, he talks about fighting
1: where just
0: like getting into fights, like, you know, back in the day, like palling around with his friends, getting into fights all the time and stuff like that. So it seemed, uh, but yeah, so he definitely seems like someone who is never afraid to just say whatever's on his mind. Like he's not, he's not concerned about people getting upset with him. Uh, Like, I I think he kind of feels like he could take care of himself no matter what comes his way. So he's, he's just going to say whatever he wants to say. Yeah. Um, and he does <laughs> yeah so i mean absolutely all the interviews with him are entertaining if nothing else and um in some ways it seems like a lot of interviewers have a tough time like corralling him enough to do a straight interview right
1: keeping up with um, him yeah
0: yeah yeah just keeping up with them and stuff like that but um yeah like I, i'm definitely going to be uh i know the album that comes after this black metal is obviously Huge in terms of like the establishment of black metal. Um, but I haven't really dove into that album, so I will definitely be doing that because you correct me if I'm wrong, but these first two albums seem to be those foundational albums that everybody talks about oh, as sure. far as Venom's influence on the entire genre yeah
1: absolutely yeah i mean like i said black metal is it's still a good album uh it has a much cleaner sound than this but for me it's not quite as good as this one just because as i say it doesn't quite have that same energy some sort of manic chaotic energy that this one does uh but it is still a good album it's still absolutely worth listening to and yes of course literally gave its name to an entire genre of music uh, even though that music doesn't actually sound anything like Venom. <laughs> but it does have that same lo-fi DIY aesthetic, you know, of kind of, actually, you don't right. you don't want it to be slick. You don't want it to be overproduced. You want that chaotic, raw, muddy energy. That's, you know, that's the one thing that the Norwegian black metal movement kept uh, from Venom, I think.
0: Well, and and again, to go back to their influence, right, it's like they had a lot of elements of what they were doing. And it's interesting to see, like, what specific genres took, you know, these Which couple influences took, and ran yeah. in that direction. We took these couple influences and kind of built on it in that direction. And so it's just cool to see, like, there's a lot of venom in a lot of stuff that I grew up really loving, which is awesome. Yeah. And um, and obviously I would say the same of Motorhead.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of venom in a lot more metal than most people realize, I think. Uh,
0: for sure. Yeah. That was definitely my experience listening to this album, is like it kind of blew my mind in that way.
1: All right. Well, like I say, I'm delighted that you enjoyed it. I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, so let's talk about next episode. So next episode, the actual next episode that we release is probably gonna be a backstage pass. Um uh so that will be out you know at some point soon uh but then obviously after that we will get to uh another regular episode and it will be your last pick of this volume so no pressure what <laughs> are what are you, what, what you going to pick for the homework
0: when i tell you that i'm looking at 3 albums right now and i'm still in this moment trying to decide which one to end on well i'll tell you um, what
1: i'll give you a minute to think about it because i just realized i forgot to do our usual uh you do that and spiel, let me, yeah, let while me, you think about uh, it so i will yeah, thank everybody nice. out there for listening as always uh if you enjoy the show do please spread the word to friends family fellow satanists whoever um rate us on itunes google play podcasts wherever you listen to your uh podcasts you know if you can drop us a rating that helps other people find us. And of course you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh being a patron gives you the opportunity to be on the backstage pass episodes like we're gonna do next time, uh, or to take part in the listener choice polls and the uh encore polls. We'll be doing an encore, um, I think. i'm just looking at my yeah we'll be doing an encore in a couple of episodes time as well for this volume so being a patron uh means you can take part in all those things and also just you know gives you a nice warm feeling because you are helping support the show and helping us pay our bills for web hosting and domain names and you know all that sort of boring stuff uh So go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to uh, pledge and support us there. If you want to get in touch, go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to email and Twitter for as long as Twitter still exists. Uh, And of course you can join the Facebook group that we talked about earlier at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. All right. Your time's up. Make a decision. Okay.
0: (laughs) I think I've talked myself into this one because I think I see where the other ones fit somewhere. Uh, Okay in the future. Hit me. But am I 100% sure about the choice?
1: We talked about commitment.
0: Oh, shit. Okay, all right. All right. (laughs) Now I just changed my mind again. Okay, we are going to do, as my final pick of this season, we are going to do the debut album from Wasp.
1: Oh.
0: And, but, We are going to do, here's the thing, we have to do the reissue from 1998 because the first song on this album, which is Animal, was supposed to be the opening song on the album, but it got taken off because of the PMRC and all of that stuff at the time. yeah. And so it was actually released as a single in the UK, and then it was restored for the 1998. So, But essentially, we are doing the debut album from Wasp, 1984's self-titled debut, but with Animal as the first song sure. on that album. Yeah. If that makes sense to you. And I hope that's not breaking the rules no, 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 of no, that. But fine. I feel like yeah. we can't talk about that album without talking about that song. Um, and now having done, I think one of the first notes I made for this Venom album is like, Well, now I'm not worried about doing a Wasp album, (laughs) like, as far as any sort of hesitation around like lyrical content or anything else. It's like, If we're going to do Venom, I think we can do Wasp. And I feel like you just said it, committing, right? If we're committing to this discussion, and for me, which has been a lot about revisiting these um bands of the 80s, and I mentioned Wasp at the beginning of this one as one that I feel like you know, also has a little bit of venom in that, then I think it's a good one for my last pick.
1: That sounds, uh, yeah, eminently uh, sensible and logical. And yeah, absolutely makes sense. Yeah, funnily enough, actually, I remember it being a single in the UK. I actually, I don't think at the time that I realised that it had been banned or or not released anyway uh, in the US, because over here that was, you know, everybody who was around at that time remembers that song in the UK, certainly, uh, because i mean obviously it never got it was never on top of the pops or played on radio one or anything like that you know
0: (laughs) yeah i don't know what the radio version would sound like of that song but we'll have plenty of time to talk about it sound like a john Um, cage
1: composition four minutes of silence
0: (laughs) exactly (laughs) it would just be the part where he says i'm an animal that's it that would be the whole chorus uh yeah
1: that's so Um, funny all right okay so it's wasp then it's wasp fantastic thanks for listening everybody keep thrashing take care everybody See you in a few minutes. I'll see you in hell. (laughs) (laughs) There's your
0: sound bite for the exit. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)